Hello and welcome back to Metastation. We are returning after our mid-length hiatus to our season one recaps, which we started last summer. We left off with 106, his sister's keeper, last summer, and we are picking up this summer with 107, which has a title. What is the title? Oh, Contents Under Pressure. Um, uh, 107, <laughs> Contents Under Pressure. Aaron's been drinking. <laughs> we should have opened with that. Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm in Mississippi. I've been drinking for three hours. <laughs> Hi, I'm Claire. I'm in Portland and I'm sober. So this is going to be quite a journey. <laughs> I've never podcasted drunk before. I've always been stone cold sober while podcasting, but it's been uh, it's been a time these last couple months. I got attacked by a pack of feral dogs. Literally the truth. A pack of feral dogs. Yeah, that's then, true. Yeah. Yes, actually, actually true. And then my husband got a kidney stone on our anniversary trip and a whole bunch of other stuff happened. And so, and then last night was the like insane Senate vote over where we almost all fucking just like we're going to die of bankruptcy, but then we're saved at the last minute by John fucking McCain. Worst West Wing episode ever. Oh my God. So (laughs) about 2.30 this afternoon, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get a little bit drunk. So I'm going to be. And it's also a Friday. So I feel like. Friday. Yes. And I'm home and it's my last Friday before I start teaching again. So like I have got to let loose I guess I don't know what just happened yes. so um I'm not this. like <laughs> I'm not like super drunk at this particular moment but um it'll be interesting Claire's gonna have to be the the wrangler of the two of us yes this is gonna be lots of fun drunk Aaron is perhaps my favorite my favorite version of Aaron of all <laughs> I love all the Aaron's but drunk Aaron is a particular favorite <laughs> so oh, this is boy. gonna be lots of fun so we're going to start on the arc and kind of cover what's going on in those various storylines and then talk about all the stuff happening on the ground. There's really, there's a lot in this episode. This is one of my favorites, I think, actually, of season one. I, yeah, I, when I was, when I was rewatching it, I, and I rewatched it twice today, once sober and once drunk. And yeah, no, and I was thinking both times, it was just like, man, like this is one of the tightest episodes, both, both in terms of plot yes. and also thematically. It's like, I think it's one of the best written episodes of the season, if not the series, actually, I think. I think so, too. I think it does a really, really neat and elegant job of doing the thing that all of my favorite episodes of The 100 do, which is... We are barreling through so much plot that everything is so like crisp and tight without losing those kind of quiet and still character moments that let the emotional stakes of things breathe. So like there's just there's so much happening on the arc. There's so much happening on the ground. But there are also really key moments where the characters whose emotional journeys we're on get to kind of stop and feel those stakes I think that's why when the plot really starts to accelerate that you're right there with them yes yes I agree yeah I mean it's like it's very very crystal clear in terms of what all the big plot stuff happening you know what what that means for the various characters in the story and so I think you know this is just like yeah. one of those episodes which is like clicking yeah I think this is actually this is one of the episodes where you know I like by the when I first watched the 
watched season one, I was definitely like hooked, you know, on the show by this point. But I think this is one of the first episodes where this might be the first episode where I was like, oh, damn, like this show is really like doing some really cool, interesting, complex kind of stuff. So it's too bad I'm drunk for it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same way too. Like I feel like I was thinking about this when I was rewatching. I feel like the stretch that goes from the culling to the explosion on the arc and everything sort of from Lincoln onwards on the ground. For me, those were the moments where I really felt like you know, like it's it's sort of slow going the first couple episodes, you know, like you have to kind of, yeah. like I remember when I was when I was binge watching it and you were like, you got to just kind of power through, like it takes a little while before it kind of finds its feet. And I feel like right around here is the part where it just takes off like a freight train and you just can't stop watching. You can't like wait, like it was, it was when, the, you know, where you hit the point where you're really glad that you're binge watching it on Netflix and you don't have to wait a week between episodes. Like for me, it was right around here where it was like, oh, yeah. thank God, I can immediately find out what the fuck is going to happen, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, where the everything is just kind of like really, the momentum picks up and, you know, there's like sort of really clear trajectory of kind of like where the major issues are going and all of this yeah. despite the lingering presence of Finn. <laughs> well, and and actually maybe because he's unconscious the entire time, but this is this is actually like the least offensive that I found him. He's really a plot device and not a character. Yes, which is his best function. I was like this And he works this is like- he works actually very well. Yeah. As yeah, the no, sort of does. catatonic center of a plot that like loops around him where other people get to do very, very interesting things, bringing all of the awesome ladies together, bringing in stakes for the torture storyline, being the first really definitive link we've had in a while between the arc storyline and the ground storyline. Like this is really the point of convergence for all those things. And it's all because of Finn without us having to deal with a lot of Finn (laughs) to get there. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I don't even really mind him. Finn Collins best as inert plot device. This is how you solve a problem like Finn Collins. We solved it. We solved it. Solution number one, he is unconscious and just kind of like quasi MacGuffin. <laughs> role and Which he really is, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, solution two, kill him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> good I mean, it, it is it's hard to argue that really good storylines come out of any time Finn gets stabbed. Like it's hard to deny That's really, that makes for actually, good television. You know what? Like that is actually really true. Mid season, season one and season two, there's a really pivotal you know, sort of very, like, emotionally affecting plot and character turn that happens around Finn getting a knife stuck in his chest. Yeah, exactly. Finn Collins, best when he's stabbed. It's true. Well, in a a really sad kind of reversal where in this episode, it really is the thing that lets Clark and Raven push past their conflict to work together. And then next season, of course, it's the thing that drives the almost irreparable wedge between them. Yeah. So that's depressing. We'll come back to that. But (laughs) there's, there's so much princess mechanic to talk about in this episode. Oh my God. But back to the arc, back to space. So I love this episode for, for both plot reasons and very predictable reasons, which is it's a terrific episode (laughs) for both Abby and Kane. They both get to do real ass shit. But what I really love about it, I think storyline-wise in terms of the arc stuff, I think what this episode does in a way that I think in 
in clumsier hands could have felt clunky and it's actually really beautifully executed by is this a Kira Snyder? I think this is a Kira Snyder. Yeah, it's a Kelly Cooper and Kira Snyder, which I think is like when yeah. I saw the the writing credit, I was like, well, of course it's flawless and amazing because both exactly, are yeah, so good. Kira is one of my favorites, and yes. So what I like about what this episode does is it really plants us right in the middle of this sort of continual avalanche of the stakes crashing down of the things that have just happened while also teeing up what's going to happen next in a way that lets us breathe for a second without feeling like the momentum stops. So we begin with the sort of, you know, immediate fallout after Jaha and Abby seeing the flares. Jaha is still totally unwilling to kind of concede Abby's point and she is still doing her Abby thing and pushing and pushing and pushing trying to get someone to listen to her so we watch her getting thrown off the council for the thing that she did even though she was right which is just which will (laughs) never not make me crazy that they like oh never mind they were alive on the ground the whole time Abby was correct but she's still I was like oh like just the injustice (laughs) of it makes me bonkers (laughs) But so we see that like her big desperate last minute hero play in previous episodes to try to stop the forced culling of these people had ongoing stakes where, you know, she was she did not get floated, which she certainly took the risk knowing that she could have been. But she is off the council and kind of in the doghouse for that. And so we get our first real look at you know, the consequences of the choice that she made. You know, and that then, of course, opens the way, which we'll come back to in a second, for the rise of glorious faux populist villainous Diana Sidney, one of my favorite (laughs) minor characters in this whole show. I adore Diana Sidney, by which I mean I despise her, but in a really, really narratively satisfying way. Yes. So, so for Abby, I think for Abby and for Kane and for Jaha, we see a lot in this episode of facing up to the ongoing and increasingly high stakes of the previous decisions that they made. So for Abby, the concrete consequences are immediate and real, which is that she totally, that she loses her council seat and most of her credibility, even when it's almost immediately afterwards proved that she was right when Raven radios back in. And I think for Jaha, what we're really seeing for him is this episode is the first moment that we really see his and it just kind of happens for a second but we see his control over his own emotions crack when he lets himself hope for a second that the kids are okay and then almost immediately he's told that everyone else is fine and his son is not and that i think leads to you know the moment where we see him kind of finally crack when he's talking to the crowd at the meeting where he's telling like that he lost that he's lost his son so we're really seeing i think a first look at kind of grieving dad jaha and you know in a way that kind of potentially sets up the way some of the decisions that he makes i think later on in the show and then for kane we get this total emotional unraveling into the kind of self-recrimination and questioning of his own choices that really this i think is perhaps the single biggest emotional transition moment I would say or one of them of his whole four season character arc like this is the moment 
where he first really begins to question not just the choice that he made in the calling, but like everything that he's been doing, who he is, who they are on the arc, the way he's been making all these decisions, and and his sense of always being so sure that following the rules is right. So I, I really like that kind of sense of all three of our sort of key arc figures really smacking up headfirst against the impact of the choices that they've been making kind of all along up through the season to this point. So we sort of get a button on all of those storylines. And also to add to that, I think there's, you know, for Abby, there's the additional wrinkle of her being forced to confront her choice to tell Jaha about Jake. And, you know, yes. the, the, there's been a sort of like year, year long or however long it has been deferral of the emotional stakes, the full emotional stakes of what that choice meant for Abby that kind of finally come home to roost for her in this episode. And I think one of the ways that I think like this episode is just so good in terms of the way that it kind of, it, it, good on a kind of like coherent kind of like cohesive thematic level is if you think about that sort of repeated line on the ground between Clark and Bellamy, you know, this isn't who we are. And this is who we are now, you know, like who we are and who we need to be to survive, et cetera, et cetera. This is kind of like recurring textual theme on the ground of, you know, like who are we? And how does the how do the things that we do, the things that we have done and the reasons that we've done them shape who we are? And what do we do when who we want, who we believe we are is at odds with what we've done? You know, that's all kind of textual on the ground, but I think that's very, very much thematically present on the arc. Through Diana, they're kind of teeing up plot, right? But like the story in this episode is very much about like what are the emotional outcomes and you know from the calling, and then also how does the calling reshape who these people think they are, you know? And Kane confronts that directly. He says, "I don't know who I am anymore." So like right there, we kind of have this like there's that that line sort of ties Kane back to what's happening on the ground in terms of, you know, when you are forced to look at your choices. And you're forced to confront the things that your choice, the, you know, the repercussions of your choices and the things that they mean beyond what you were willing to have admitted or looked at before. How does that, you know, how does that reshape your identity? So, yeah. And, like, I think Jaha may be a little bit, I don't know, Jaha's so tricky, you know, because, like, he's such a, he's even, yeah. even in these early seasons when he still <laughs> has a modicum more humanity than, than he seems to have later on. You know, he's still like such, I, I feel like Jaha, even even in this, we sort of see that bifurcation of his identity between leader Jaha and father Jaha, you know? And there's, and there's a moment, and like maybe Jaha's identity crisis in this episode is that, you know, the sort of like carefully partitioned parts of himself bleed into each other for a moment you know like he works so hard to keep leader jaha separate from like person jaha emotional father jaha yeah and we see yeah. him in a, in that moment being forced to allow his feelings about his son to break through his sort of like i am jaha giving you a speech persona and it doesn't stick but but he gets that moment like he has that yeah. one yeah moment. and and it's also but i think what's interesting about that is I don't, and I don't think that it's intentionally, but it's also tactical or it serves a tactical benefit because it's by reminding them that he has skin in the game, that he, both he and Diana together win the crowd back, you know? So yeah. it's like, it is tricky to separate. It is both a raw moment of naked emotion that I do believe we're meant to 
interpret as absolutely sincere coming as it does sort of juxtaposed with that really that heartbreaking little moment where he has the like little metal welded dog toy of Wells's while he's in his office you know so like we get little flashes that that Wells really truly is on his mind and we see that kind of you know, when he's told that Wells is dead, he has to leave the room. So this is, you yeah. know, we see like this is how this is how Jaha handles emotions. So it is it's really interesting the way that even have like he has this kind of emotional outburst moment. And yet also it serves the same kind of it serves a strategic purpose. So it's just an interesting. OK, but here's my OK. So here's my question. And and I will preface this. By saying, I've been watching a lot of Leverage lately, and so this might be... Yay! Oh, yay! I love this show. (laughs) So, you know, if you've ever watched Leverage, all of their little sort of incidental mentions of whatever turn out to be deliberately planted for emotional manipulation, right? So my question is, now, Diana Sidney, like, her plan to get herself back on the council... Sort of relies on partly on the sort of like pressure of the quote unquote people, but also, but like basically an emotional appeal, right? Like she recruits that guy. They get that we get that little exchange of eye contact with a um, redheaded, you know, guy who claims to have lost his wife in the calling. That kind of tells us that his distress and his grief and his anger at Jaha for putting him through this loss is at least partly if not entirely performative. You know, it's like meant to manipulate Jaha. So my question is, to what degree is that moment of genuine emotional vulnerability on Jaha's part and sort of like breaking through, how much credit do we give Diana Sidney for that? Or was that just like a gift to her? You know, like something she figured out. Because I think, you know, I was trying to think about this. You know, I mean, I get, again, you know, maybe because I've been watching Leverage. <laughs> um, I'm inclined <laughs> to give her, I'm inclined to give her at least some credit for having worked to sort of prime Jaha to be particularly receptive to and vulnerable on his part emotion to, to sort of emotional appeals, right? Like, She's talking about, like, people are angry. My people are talking to me, you know, and she she brings in this guy who's making an entirely emotional appeal about loss. And part right. of it is sort of like she gets lucky insofar as, you know, Raven breaks through and he's sort of reminded or or he gets he gets like total confirmation like Wells is dead. He's gone. And Jaha is the one who made the decision to send him to the place where he died. But uh, I don't know, you know, I just, I was just sort of thinking like how much of that is just fortuitous for Diana Sidney and how much of that is like her sort of taking advantage of that for a plan she already had in place that depended on emotion. Yeah. The way that I always read it is that Diana has decided what she wants and is trying a bunch of different kind of equally subtle tactics to get it sort of dependent upon where Jaha is at. You know, so so her her first job, right, her first job is to sort of subtly remind him 
that she was chancellor, that she knows a lot about the Exodus Project, that she has useful information and to worm her way back into his trust while also reminding him that she is a person that a particularly unhappy segment of the populace trusts and listens to. And so I think her first, you know, the first thing which comes to him in his office, that's about reminding him, hey, you know, like, you just lost a buddy because you had to blacklist Abby. I'm just here to remind you without any kind of agenda, just because I'm a nice person, you know, <laughs> that like, I'm a person that you can trust. Like, put me in coach, basically, you know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What do you make of her crack about the chancellor's quarters were bigger when I was chancellor or whatever? I thought that was such, such a bizarre line. I, I think to to me that's kind of, you know, I mean, I think that the fact that he unseated her, I mean, like the fact that he clearly, I don't, I don't know if there were term limits or kind of what the deal was, but my sense is that they ran against each other and he beat her. Yeah, that's how it kind of comes across. Yeah, so I sort of feel like there's both a subtle little, I am your equal, in that, yeah. like, I too was chancellor, you don't actually, you you temporarily outrank me, but you're not better than me, or higher than me, or, you, or know things that I don't know, you know, like, right. positioning herself as, as a peer, instead of a subordinate, and also, I think, a little bit of... I think it's like a, a little bit of a sort of putting him in his place, but I think mostly to sort of subtly lift herself up as one of the very few people who kind of exist in this rarefied upper echelon of people who have all the information about the Exodus Project to be able to be useful to Jaha. It kind of felt like negging to me you know where she was sort yeah of yeah yeah semi subconsciously planting things to make him feel bad about himself and then like putting herself forward as like hey i can help you like i know how hard it is yeah to i think i do i think that's a lot of it i and i i i think in some way it's sort of if that's what it is it's it's really part and parcel with her either crafting or taking advantage of a scenario in which she is the person who kind of emotionally comes to his rescue in that crowd yeah 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 where it's like things happen where like she reminds him like i'm the person who can be here to back you up like i'm gonna i'm gonna make you feel a little terrible about yourself and then when other (laughs) people make you feel terrible about yourself i'm gonna be like no guys jaha has sacrificed so much you know so i think in some ways i but I, but I guess what I feel like about Diana is I think that she is more an opportunist than she is a person who is. I, I think she, I think she's more like I read the room, I see what's happening, and I make a split second decision, and not necessarily that she is crafting the thing that's happening. You know, like, I, I think, yeah. like, I don't, I don't want to necessarily give her too much credit for, but like, I, you know, Machiavellian. I don't know, because she planted that guy in the audience. Like, all those moments where she rescues Jaha from the crowd. The crowd is riled up because of the dude that seems implicitly to be doing it deliberately to set up that situation. That's true. Wait, do we know, do we find out later, is that guy one of her guys? Yes, he is. Is yeah. he... Oh, okay. I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also, this is, I think, where it's interesting to go back and rewatch this with the knowledge of the things about her that we learn later, Mm. like that her first gamble was trying to have Jaha killed. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which seems actually like 
sort of spectacularly ham-handed, you know? <laughs> like, I'll just kill yeah, him. And then, like, I don't know, something, something, something. And then she's like, wait, never mind. Now I'm going to come back with a plan that has, like, 18,000 different layers and is, like, all emotional manipulation rather than, like, shooting you in the gut. Okay, so here's <laughs> a thought about Diana. So clearly, like, Diana's plan has always been power grab like that she wants to be the leader again she wants to be in charge again she does not think very highly at all of jaha's leadership she remains on some deep core level deeply deeply resentful of him for taking away power that she clearly still believes is her right so step one executing you know like having the chancellor killed and then thus opening up a place for her as the previous chancellor to probably have a pretty easy time slipping into that slot again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Legit. But what I wonder is if the game changer for her, like if the discovery that the kids are alive on the ground and thus it's time for project Exodus is the moment that her plan flips. That, that actually makes a lot of sense because it's like a totally different question to have a plan to like, I just want to be the leader on the arc versus I want to be the person right. like the Moses, you know, who like takes everyone. Yes. To yes. Land. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that would, I think that if the moment that her strategy shifts and becomes then significantly more complicated and multi-layered is because genuinely it's a different plan now. Her plan is not take out Jaha, assume control of the Ark. Her plan is that she has to get inside in order to either A, you know, take over for Jaha, or B, I don't know, sort of whatever point, she's putting this sort of alternate plan together to just commandeer a ship and get her own people down there and kind of leave everyone to fend for themselves. But it stops being about just being chancellor and taking her job back and more about I think her yeah like wanting to be the Moses wanting to be the leader and also just wanting to get herself and her people you know as many of them as she of people that she actually cares about that she can fit on one of those ships but I think factoring in that moment where she sees what he's doing on his computer screen together with the knowledge that the kids are alive on the ground and her as a former chancellor being one of the only looks like maybe two because the council didn't know it people on the whole arc who know that there aren't enough lifeboats you know like yeah that's news to the council that's news to kane that's news to everyone at that table except for diana and yeah. so i feel like that moment is where she starts to figure out like whatever happens to jaha whatever happens to everyone else she's got to get herself and her people to the ground and yeah. and then it's a whole different ball game you know And I wonder, and I guess speaking of the Exodus plan, I wonder if maybe, I guess one of the interesting little, and I'm kind of, this is just, I'm just not thinking about this now, you know, in in talking about kind of thematic threads that weave the Abbey arc and the Kane arc and the Jaha arc together, one kind of interesting, very, I think, subtle one in there is this idea of kicking the can down the road of like things where you're like, I'll deal with the outcome of this later. I'll deal with the consequences of this later, putting off, and putting off. And this is a moment where the chickens finally come home to roost, both for Clark yeah. and Abby, you know, in, in this sort of long deferred conversation that Abby has obviously known for a long time that they've been needing to have, that they haven't had an opportunity to have. And that finally crashing down now and her having to finally confront 
this thing that she's been, and some of it not through her own fault because Clark was arrested and then they were separated and whatever, you know, but a conversation that she hasn't been having that she needed to have with Clark about what really happened. And then for Kane, I think there's the, the sort of long deferred taking a really good hard look at the person that he is, the way he's been making choices, not just in terms of the calling, but a way bigger picture sort of confronting of his sense of his own rightness all the time, having really blinded himself to what was really happening. You know, like he was so sure that Abby was full of shit that it didn't even occur to him, you know, I th- like him sort of being like, if I waited one day, you know, if he had been yeah. like even a little bit flexible, like even a little bit willing to give her a tiny amount of grace just to see, like if he had trusted her the littlest bit, like those people would all still be alive and they would get to go to earth. And I, and it's because of him being so rigid that he's not. And so I think there is a sort of like kind of long, long needed, long put off kind of look at the kind of leader that he is and the kind of person that he has now makes decisions. And I think for Jaha, I think it's, it's the, the Exodus project is, is a really, I think, tidy, neat little metaphorical way of looking at that. Cause it's a reminder that Jaha was never supposed to be the chancellor who was making these decisions. You know, this is a, a problem for some person who isn't even born yet, who will be chancellor a hundred years from now. And we, we get little hints of this in some of Jaha's stuff kind of all through season one where he talks about them being a transitional generation. You know, he talks about like this was never he wasn't elected chancellor to be the guy that had to make these decisions. Like he was not elected based on the set of qualifications it would take to be the guy executing the Exodus project. He's just supposed to keep the thing going you know, through his lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Just keep the lights on and the water running. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and the air clean. <laughs> right, exactly. And and so now, so I think that there is an element of like, it's not, it's not really like defensiveness or self-pity, but there's, but he is very aware, I think, of, of feeling, I think the, both in, in good and bad ways, the fact that this is, all wildly outside of his job description and he's having to make a lot of decisions on the fly based on not a lot of information and and knowing that it will either be you know a spectacular success or the literal end of the human race if he makes (laughs) the wrong choice right and so i think in a really big picture kind of way like we have it on a sort of very intimate and personal level with abby and with kane that you're like, I don't have to think about this too hard. This is a problem for future me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this is really the episode where like future me has to deal with those things right now because they're happening right now. Future you is like, God damn it, pass me. <laughs> God yeah, damn it, pass future me. You is like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I guess it's today. <laughs> so I think for Jaha, I'm kind of a, a bigger picture political sense of like the the day that you were sort of hoping or assuming was never going to come or or you only were able to sleep at night because you were like well I mean if ever that's a long way off like I will cross that bridge when I come to it and all three of them are like ah here I am at the bridge (laughs) you know and and so it is kind of like like a little tie between all three of those storylines where it's like well I guess I must now cross it Fuck. It's like, 
okay, all of my bluffs are being called simultaneously. Exactly. shit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I think it's really interesting, too, because I think, like, for Kane and Jaha, certainly, and maybe for... Maybe for Abby in a kind of a way with Clark, but I don't know. But for Kane and Jaha, certainly, it feels like this episode is really... Well, I think, like, overall, the um, this Diana Sidney stuff aside, you know, the, the plot on the arc is really about... It's all about, like, the emotional sort of um, repercussions of the calling coming home to roost. Well, and actually, really, the emotional repercussions of everything that's been going on coming home to roost in terms of Jaha having to, like, confront the loss of Wells and so forth. And I think it's really interesting because, like, you know, in a lot of ways... The, the reckoning that's really happening for Kane and Jaha is this kind of like, it, it's, it's the, the head-on collision, finally, of two different worldviews or sort of views of people. One of them is sort of like looking at people as a biological problem, which is what Kane had been doing. Right. You know, Kane is all about like right, right. 300 people equals six months less oxygen. Therefore, we must remove these bodies which use oxygen which are a problem in order to solve this sort of like engineering problem basically like bioengineering problem right right. exactly yeah you know same thing with like the decision to send the kids to the ground it's like you know that like that removes these like bodies that use oxygen and allows us to gather data you know like the wristbands the wristbands are sending like biological data about survival Mm -hmm. the way that kane talks about you know like he's thinking about humans as the human race. Like, he'll take us down to a cosmic Adam and Eve. Like, it's all about just getting human DNA to a point where it can reproduce itself and keep going. You know, and this is the kind of, like, by this sort of... Keynes had this kind of, like, monomaniacal focus on that. You know, like, this is the thing that he... This is how he compartmentalized. You know, I think he's just sort of, like, focused on that problem. And Jaha did that, too. Like, not to quite the same extreme as Kane, maybe, but, like... Jaha did that too, you know, the same sort of thing. You know, like Jaha's like, my job is to keep the most people alive I can, the most bodies alive I can. Right, and the right. kind of like the question of the fact that those bodies have identities and emotions and connections is sort of, is just kind of brushed aside or ignored. And I think this is the episode where Kane has to confront the fact that the people who died to keep the art, you know, more people alive in aggregate were individual human beings with relationships who are being mourned. You know what I mean? And like, and Jaha, same thing, you know, like he has to like, so that scene at the Eden tree is this kind of like head on collision of two different models of humanity. One of them is species and one of them is humanity as sort of like, humanity as we think about it is like sort of like values you know like the value of an individual versus the value of a species and this is really where kane and jaha have to go like fuck i didn't just kill i didn't just like remove 300 problematic bodies like i like killed a bunch of people you know and here are these other people who are still alive Yeah, like the difference between I increased our surplus oxygen by X percent by removing the lungs that were depleting it versus like her name was Beth and here is a necklace that she wore every day and it's sitting on this altar and I am here because my wife is dead. Like, God, the prop work in that scene 
does so much work for you. Like it really encouraged people to like flip through a, a gallery of screen caps or like go through it frame by frame and look at what's on that table. Like when we come in on that scene, there's so much humanity in the things on that table and we're watching Kane walk in and look at those things around the Eden tree. This is one of my favorite Kane scenes and, and I think really scenes in the whole in the whole show. What I love about the calling is in such simple, subtle little ways, they make all those people so real. Yeah. In the culling episode, it's the dad with his daughter's barrette. And in this episode, it's that table full of people's personal mementos and the list of names next to the tree. And it's so subtle, and it's not overplayed, and it's not cheesy or saccharine or anything. It's just human beings. You know, like the stakes of those deaths are so real and we didn't have to get to know all 320 of those people you only had to get to know one of them and then we sort of see the kind of detritus of everybody else's lives yeah 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 and i and i think it is interesting like you say like it really is that kind of moment of transitioning from humanity as abstraction into humanity as composed of individual humans and what's really interesting to me i think in a lot of ways is how it is definitively and unequivocally a transitional moment for Kane and it's sort of a blip for Jaha you know like Jaha continues over the course of four seasons to in many ways view humanity in that big picture sense again after what we just saw like after this season that just ended it's really interesting watching Jaha talking about not enough lifeboats. You know, the sort of right. kind of the phrase <laughs> that Jason used all over the course of season four. Right. You know, about the nightblood and space and Cadigan's bunker and all that kind of stuff. And so to be reminded that as early as this episode, Jaha the leader was facing this exact problem of limited resources, having to make a decision of who lives and who dies. Maybe the way he rationalizes it to himself is that he never gets an opportunity to let himself think of human beings as individually important because he sort of never stops being in the position where he feels like he has to think about it abstractly, I guess. In season four, there's a lot of moments that we got that we you know, were talking about all season. There's so many moments that really click back to season one Jaha in season four Jaha. Well, even season two and three, Jaha, I think arguably is running from, literally and figuratively, he's running from the kind of like full brunt of that kind of level of individual humanity and loss, right? Like he leaves yeah. camp. He's like trying to like, I'm going to go off on this pilgrimage to find this place where we can be happy in a sort of like weird blanket way. Towards this very abstract salvation. Right. And then in see, and then with Allie, you know, he forgets Wells. It's all about sort of like losing that kind of like the particular memories that make you who you are because they're painful in favor of this kind of like right. blanket sort of like aggregate whatever like version of kind of like well-being that the city of light offers so i think that's all kind of of a piece i remain so curious as to like what especially now that we know that he's not going to be a series regular like what season five jaha is going to be like i guess it's possible that like Maybe he dies in the bunker and we only see him in flashbacks. What if Octavia floats him? Actually, I've heard that theory a lot and I 
I am deeply interested in, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, not like, you know, like, yay, Jaha should die. Because I, I am getting more <laughs> interested in him. He, he did, to some degree, win me back in season four, where, where I was sort of, season three, I was like, yes, no, please kill him. He should die in this finale. <laughs> but, and he did do some stuff that interested me a lot in season four. But yeah, I think that could be a fascinating test case for, like, Octavia has pretty solidly established her leadership over the clans because the clans agreed to this conclave. She won the conclave fair and square. She doesn't seem to be having any kind of problems with the grounders having like established to the rules that they all agreed to her leadership. But I do wonder, you know, we didn't see much except for that one speech she kind of gives to everybody of how Sky Crew is going to feel suddenly having her, like, be the boss of them. And, like, her having to float or in, in some other really harsh way kind of discipline somebody who, by the Sky Crew system, dramatically outranks her, you know, as sort of a show of, like, no, I'm in charge now, could be really, really interesting. And, and also would have a, a really interesting and kind of very dark impact on her relationship with Kane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Octavia has to have Jaha executed, it's hard to see how their kind of familial bond comes back from that because, you know, Jaha's intermittent dickishness aside, you know, he and Kane have been friends for what we're meant to assume has seems to have been most of their adult lives, for a very long time at least. So I'm curious about where he goes and what happens to him. But it is interesting, particularly in these episodes in season one, where we're watching the process by which he makes leadership decisions in these, well, a certain number of people have to be sacrificed, so let's figure out how to do that strategically kind of way, where it's like, okay, so all of the, you know, Ali's brain fuckery aside, season four Jaha, you know, sneaking around to get all of his people secretly in the bunker and breaking the rules that they agreed to with the grounders is absolutely the same guy he was in season one. You know, like he wasn't qualitatively changed as a human being by his experience in the city of light, the way I think other characters were really deeply and profoundly shaped by the things that Allie made them do or the things that happened to them, you know, like, like the way somebody like Ilian was permanently changed by the existence of the city of light, you know, by yeah. the things that he had to do when Allie took him over. And and so it's really interesting that Jaha, who was in deeper with Allie than anybody else was, like, he comes out of it very much the same kind of leader that he was before any of this happened in terms of the ease with which he can kind of pull back that lens and see the board mathematically. And I think that one of the reasons that I like this episode and this kind of chunk of story so much was this was really the moment where I, you know, because the first time I watched the show, I was just like, oh, fuck this Kane guy. You know, like, <laughs> what an asshole. And, and I think sort of similar to where the previous episode is where my, oh, fuck this Bellamy guy really sort of goes away, like where you really dig into his backstory with Octavia and all the flashbacks yeah. and stuff where you're just sort of like, oh, I think I like Bellamy now. What's happening to me? <laughs> and this episode was where I really, the first time through where I really felt like it came, like where I felt so 
much empathy for him, but also where he became really interesting to me as a character because watching him break down at the Eden tree is the first sort of genuinely narratively unexpected thing that we see him do. You know, everything that we have seen him do up until this point is consistent with the sort of not caricature, but but a, a sort of a very archetypal version of a character that we meet in the pilot where he's he's the like overly strict borderline asshole second in command. He's unflinching. He's super rigid. He's not quite a villain. Like he's just sort of human enough that he's not really the bad guy. But you don't really feel anything for him. And everything he does is he's just and in you a straight sort line. of suspect that he had Jaha shot because he's probably power hungry. You know, exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, I totally like I, like at this point in the story, I absolutely believed like I was genuinely surprised when it was revealed that it was not Kane. Yeah, no, me too. And I think this episode might have been the part where I began to be like, oh my gosh, what if it's not? Like the sort of the murder mystery part of it, you know, where you're like, maybe he didn't because all of a sudden you're seeing this like really raw, naked kind of humanity. And Jaha's the one that's like kind of a dick where he's like, pull yourself together, drunk ass. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) you are not a very good friend, Thelonious. So this was like, for me, this was a big, like, I'm suddenly fascinated by the layers of this character. Like it, where it really, it really sort of took him in a wildly unexpected sharp right turn direction that they then really stick with. Like it all sort of tracks. This is a moment where his whole character kind of transitions. And so it's just interesting to kind of watch for these two people who really start off the show as kind of a a leadership pair you know who make decisions very similarly and where you can tell that like everything Kane learned about being a leader he learned by being Jaha's right hand he learned from the Exodus charter he learned from previous chancellors like Diana where everyone is very ruthless very by the book and this is the moment that you sort of start to see him first beginning to ask the question like is there a better way to be a leader and to be a man than the way that I've been doing it? Because I'm really having to sort of confront the emotional angst of my failure. And Jaha is able to kind of shake it off. Jaha's more shaken up about Wells than he is about the culling at any point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's the loss that affects him personally that has really traumatized him. And for Kane, it is the culling. And Abby is the one who really feels it, I think, both you know like abby has personal losses and she also is able to personalize the mass death in a way that jaha just can't because we got so much great jaha and kane as sort of increasingly opposites from each other leadership stuff to dig into in season four it's interesting to watch this as one of the very early moments of kind of like the the fracturing of that i guess Mm -hmm. yeah and I just, I just love Vera Kane so much. Like, <laughs> so, so much. I hope she's somewhere in the bunker just, oh, no, wait, she dies in the, never mind. I know she dies. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for bringing me down. Uh, I do really hope the fact that episode 501, we just found out, is titled Eden And that Eden is the word that the writers have kind of tossed around, or I guess if Jason has, to talk about what they call or what 
Clark calls the one patch of green that survives uh, Prime Fire does make me wonder did the Eden tree survive in the bunker? You know, did Kane go back and like dig it up? Or maybe he, esta- he maybe he like has a new one that he kind of established in her honor, you know, to try to yeah he- carry forward the tradition for the kids and or the people who are inside the yeah. bunker as it was in the art. Yeah, I hope, I would love it to be the same tree. I like the poetry of, you know, the tree that like came from the ground up to space with the first prime fire and then they kept it alive for a hundred years in space and then it comes back down and he plants it you know at arcadia when he thinks that's going to be their permanent home and then you know like i just i like the idea of like wherever it is that they end up finally settling you know like when the show ends wherever on earth the sort of final settlement ends up happening that that tree that sort of made the journey from like earth to space to earth again to underground to whatever you know like i i kind of like that trajectory of like everywhere Mm -hmm. that this segment of humanity has lived this particular tree has kind of come along with them so i hope we get a little glimpse of it maybe before we transition to the ground storyline i want to talk a little bit more about diana (laughs) Not just because I love her, but also because I just, I know you and I in, in the past, not in necessarily the podcast, but just like as human beings have had lots <laughs> of conversations about like Diana's faux populism and kind yeah. of the, like the particular brand of politics that we see her calculatedly espousing in order to climb to power and in a way that becomes unfortunately increasingly politically relevant (laughs) yeah i know and i think like i think it's really interesting actually just to kind of like pick up this thread again that you know one thing that i love about this episode and i love about season one i really like art that doesn't let you settle on an answer like I'm always most interested Mm -hmm. in like a tv show or movie or a poem or a novel or whatever that like doesn't let you settle on like okay this thing x is gonna be that's obviously the right answer like things that are sort of like aha except and so like one thing that I really like about this episode that kind of ties into Diana is like so we've been talking about the way that like you know Kane's kind of transformation as a character and as a man the trajectory that that kind of begins in this episode and that he's going to stay on for the, really the rest of the series has to do with him learning how to sort of like honor human connection and human emotion as a piece of humanity that is important, you know, as important as like species survival, you know? So like he has to have this sort of reckoning with like, you didn't just, just remove... 300 sets of lungs you know you killed 300 people who are people who have these connections and the kind of importance of that emotional resonance that he'd been pushing away and Jaha kind of pushes away in really disturbing ways and so it would be easy from that side of things to kind of go like oh well you know like obviously it's all about like recognizing the beauty and importance of human emotion and connection duh and the great thing about Diana is that Diana is the sort of like malignant flip side of that because Diana's politics are all about manipulating emotion like she uses emotion to get people to do what she wants to do. Jaha, I think, is the kind of like the most interesting example because he's the hardest nut to crack. But like the way that she, you know, she has her guy who's a plant in the crowd. He may or may not be there to manipulate Jaha's emotion, but he's definitely there to manipulate the people's emotion, to get them into an emotional state that 
Diana can exploit for her own power. So yeah, so like I think that's a really interesting thing. We can sort of delve into like that version of sort of like emotional populism or faux populism or whatever it is. But I think it's a really interesting counterpoint. There's a kind of like, there's the positive side of emotion and human connection that I think like Vera represents. And then there's the kind of negative side, the way that it can be manipulated, the way that it can kind of turn sour, it can turn bad. You know, and and like Diana, I think, really kind of exemplifies that. And I just love that this episode has both. Yes. It doesn't let you kind of go like, oh, yay, feelings. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> like they can be good and they can be bad. <laughs> I think what makes Diana so interesting as a person and as a leader and particularly with what we know of what her, you know, game plan might be. You know, I'm always so interested in characters who who's jobs or lives somehow revolve around being able to figure out what people want and give it to them yeah like she's so remarkable at reading a room yeah i've had some really interesting conversations so our friend of the podcast sarah who's at oscar mike on twitter is perhaps this fandom's biggest diana sydney stan she <laughs> loves diana sydney she also loves Pike. She has a type. And she also loves Pike. Yeah, yeah. Sarah is a proud contrarian. <laughs> but she and I had a really long and in-depth conversation one time about all of the different political parallels between Diana and somebody like Donald Trump. I mean, obviously, like, not not to that magnitude. I mean, like, you know, the, the crazier Trump gets, the more it feels nonsensical to parallel him to anyone else who's ever existed, real or fictional, because he's so fucking crazy. Yeah. And actually, in, in some ways, I think a gentler case comparison is somebody like George W. Bush. Yeah. Like, wealthy, blue-blooded, powerful, like, Trump, the big money New York real estate guy, Bush, the, like, Massachusetts Ivy League blue blood who rose to a particular brand of political power by pretending to be working class and by mm. identifying with working class people and plausibly claiming to represent them and understand their concerns while actually they were just like, you are the mass of bodies that I need to win the votes that I need so I can achieve the power that I want. Right, right. So this particular kind of contemporary Republican political gamesmanship where you know, wealthy Wall Street cajillionaires have successfully convinced low-income white Christians in middle America that they are genuinely being heard and understood. You know, I mean, like, what happened last night is, like, a perfect example of, you know, like, how many senators and congressmen voted against a Medicaid expansion that helped their constituents because the abstract political football of trying to shit on Obama's legacy mattered more than like people in your state are going to lose their Medicaid. Right. And yet people who themselves were going to lose their health insurance voted against their own self-interest because an incredibly rich and powerful person convinced them like, no, I'm one of you. I understand you, you know? And I think that Diana's, the skill with which she has convinced the kind of working class blue collar population on the arc that she's their person, you know, like she's who represents them. She's their spokesperson, you know, and, and all along the whole season, like this is her game, you know, like when she first comes to Jaha, she's like, 
you know, these are my people. I'm the workers chancellor, you know, like making America great again. You know, like, like she's running the same kind of campaign where she has convinced all of these people that she's looking out for them and they have no idea what her sort of ultimate con is. And they're not looking at how they, by lending their sort of on mass credibility to her, they're helping her achieve a goal that only really benefits her. You know, like, and if it benefits them tangentially, great. You know, but what she wants is to be chancellor again. And she's right. going to use angry, grieving, hurting, powerless people to get her there because she's successfully convinced them that she is not just, like, speaking for them, but, like, endemically, like, part of their group you know like that they relate to her and they feel like she relates to them and it's such a spectacular like deftly executed con that i feel like you the viewer or i guess for me when i was watching the first time have no idea it's a con until it's revealed that it's a con you know like mm -hmm. she's so yeah. plausible and i think the, the only reason i remember when i first was watching it that i was convinced that she was shady was because I had just finished binge-watching all of Battlestar Galactica, where she plays somebody who's very shady. <laughs> and so I would, but I was like, well, maybe I just, maybe it's just that actress, you know? <laughs> but you don't really know until you know, which I think is what makes her so much fun. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And yeah, she definitely has that kind of, like, semi-sleazy, only I understand my people, only I sort of can speak for you sort of persona. There's sort of like uncomfortable resonances with some recent <laughs> political <Yes. laughs> situations or I'm sort of like watching it now as opposed to watching it like, you know, two and a half years ago or whenever it was the first time I watched the season one. It's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least unlike Donald Trump, she is a career politician and apparently was yeah. a competent chancellor and actually knew what she was doing. So, you know. She has one up on Trump in that sense. Exactly. Like, the fact that there was a working functional arc society to hand off to Jaha. So already, she's, like, tracking better than most of the modern <laughs> right. GOP, you know? <laughs> wah, like, the arc wasn't on fire when Jaha was elected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the council wasn't voting on things that they didn't want to actually have happen in hopes that someone would stop it before it actually right. happened. So, you know... Arc uh, greater than America. It's funny because that's real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh boy. Lord. It is depressing to be an American right now. <laughs> uh. Suddenly, my metric of like, would you rather be on the arc or would you rather be a person alive right now has sort of shifted <laughs> towards the arc. Yeah. No, in I a way know. That I did not expect. Yeah. I was talking about this a little bit on yesterday on, on Twitter. I had meant to rewatch this episode at least once yesterday, and I just kind of could not, like, I was just, I was glued to Twitter all day trying to figure out, like, what the hell was going to go on with, with this healthcare vote. But I was thinking a lot about, because I knew, you know, I knew it was like, oh, this is the, you know, the rise of Diana. And so I was thinking a lot about, like, the authoritarians on this show and how differently they read to me when you sort of think about them in contrast with like the real world authoritarians and not just in the US too, you know, like Putin and this kind of like continued press for hard right leadership in, you know, countries all over Europe that 
many of them have sort of successfully pushed back on. But we have, you know, we have all these sort of like real world test cases. And and man, you know, like even the worst leaders on this show in comparison, I'm like, well, Dante Wallace was like, no, it wasn't that bad. You know, like it's really like... One of the weird things I think that that the current kind of political landscape is doing to your brain is it's like it makes everything else seem kind of vanilla by comparison. Yeah. You know, for a fictional character to be believable, they have to have a level of nuance that real human beings aren't obligated to have. Yeah. <laughs> like a fictional character like Dante Wallace and even Cage, who's, who's so much yeah. worse. If Cage Wallace was purely and unequivocally motivated by just, like, unfiltered evil, you'd be like, all right, well, this is a terrible show. You know, like, this is just stupid. Like, <laughs> right, people right. like that don't really exist. You, know, you have him and you have Dr. Singh. Like, yes, they are deeply motivated by very cruel impulses. They're not, you know, ethical people. But the driving force behind them is, like, we care very much about our people surviving and we figured out a way to make that happen. You know, like I think if you lived in Matt Weather, you probably think that Dr. Singh is a great doctor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that kind of moral relativism of like whether things are good or bad varies a lot depending on where you're standing. And when I like this show the best is because it's really digging at the messiness of that, you know, where mm -hmm. like yeah. good and evil as abstractions are much less interesting dramatically than What's the difference between a character on this side of the line and a character on this side of the line who are at odds? And how do they sort of see the situation from different points of view? And real people don't have to be that nuanced and complicated <laughs> until you can have somebody like Donald Trump who is purely motivated by, like, base selfishness, who has never loved anything unselfishly in his life, not a sports team, not a pet, not a food, not an ideal, not a human being, even his children, like he only loves them because they have utility to him. Yeah. Or they reflect him, you know, they like yes. are a piece of his identity that reflects well on him or yes, whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They feed his sense of himself, so they serve a function, you know. Yeah. And the ones that don't serve a function, like Baron and Tiffany, he doesn't really care about, you know. <laughs> right. And even Eric, you know. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I think about this a lot. The way, the crazier the world gets the more it shifts the way I think we engage with art and with fiction where you're like, oh, right. There was a time when I would never have believed that somebody could exist who was just that purely like, fuck everything. And now <laughs> here we are, you know. Yeah. But like people like Jaha, even like the Wallaces look very different now, I think, than yeah. when we were first watching the show in 2014. In a time, at least as an American, where politically things were much more settled. And so you can kind of explore in fiction things that you aren't living. It was a different world when we could believe that our political leaders were acting out of some kind of genuine conviction that their actions would be for the betterment of the lives of the people they represented. Which we can yeah. no longer trust, you know? And, like, at least yeah. Dante Wallace genuinely believed that he was doing the best thing that he could for his set yes. of people. And they're sort of like, well, whatever, that's the baseline, so I can't really, that doesn't really count for anything. And now that we have, like, an entire 
basically party that doesn't even like meet that standard it's like oh you know maybe dante wasn't so bad right right right, exactly well because it's like everyone like even even the worst people on this show like everybody loves something everybody has someone that they care about yeah even Antari, who you could argue is one of the like least kind of ethically tethered characters on the show yeah. is so motivated by I think wanting Naya to be proud of her you know of like yeah. like who Naya was to her the example that Naya set you know and Naya was plenty heartless but Naya genuinely loved Rowan and wanted extraordinary things for Rowan that like for him to achieve things that she couldn't achieve herself and they also, like both Antari and Naya, cared deeply about their own people, you know, about Ice yeah. Nation, them surviving, them having power, them having success. And so even though they were both tremendously selfish in how they executed those goals, Ice Nation as a incredibly cohesive unit of people who always protect each other, it's one of those, again, like inside it versus outside it. How does Asgeta look to Pike? Versus how does Asgeta look to Echo? And this show lets you see all those different angles, you know, because you can believe that even the most, you know, cutthroat, callous, hard-hearted, selfish, murdery, you know, leaders on this show, it's like there is somebody or something that you are fighting for, which means that you love something. It means that you care about something. It means that you have some sense of a thing or a group that's bigger than just yourself and your own needs or pleasure or satisfaction or power or control or authority or whatever. And so like even with the characters on this show that are sort of purely villainous, there is a kind of, I guess, nobility in that. And even with Allie, who is the most dispassionate because she's literally a computer, she's executing a violent and and destructive version of a good and noble goal. You know, mm-hmm. like it's a yeah. perversion of something that started out as a genuine service to humanity. You could call it perverse instantiation. You could, in fact, if you wanted <laughs> to use such a term. So it's interesting, like I just, I watch the show differently now with this like weird sense of like, nostalgia for a time when our real life political landscape didn't make me like long for like I wish Dante Wallace was our president you know like (laughs) that's a crazy fucked up place to be (laughs) at least I would know that he had something approaching our well-being in his mind as he was making decisions and Jaw looks great in comparison right seriously oh my god yeah Yeah. anyway All right, so on the ground, things are happening that involve (laughs) they certainly are being in his best possible state, which is being stabbed. (laughs) Yes, the best of all possible fins. (laughs) (laughs) The best of all possible fins is skewered on a knife. Yes. So, so speaking of things that in this episode, the first time I watched it, were were moments that really made me be like whoa this show is doing some unexpected stuff in addition to the kind of the cane pivot the way the clark and raven storyline 
plays out post love triangle or i guess post reveal of love triangle was like revelatory yeah because because again i was so just like with kane i was 100 percent convinced that i knew exactly where this was going oh yeah i was like all right here comes the love i was so ready to hate yeah i was ready to hate it from minute one and there's so much to unpack in individually in their relationship with finn the relationship with each other but but just like you know i think in a in a similar way to to sort of the the Kane thing where it's like you sort of it's set up a set of of very conventional expectations where you're like okay I know how this is going to play out I know what's happening here and then it goes into this much more emotionally messy and interesting and unique place where it really felt like you know I think the relationship between Clark and Raven and particularly what we see sort of their ability to put aside kind of whatever emotional place they were at in the previous episode in order to make sure that they're like that they're both kind of keeping each other on task in this episode is like fascinating to me you know like Clark coming over Mm -hmm. and being the one who's like Raven you can do this when Raven is beating herself up you know and then Raven being the person to tell Clark you know like that they're their ability to be reassuring to each other in spite of the fact that the big thing that is between them and that's been keeping them from being able to like have an amicable relationship is this Finn thing. And they're literally like on opposite sides of Finn and he's right there and they're both trying to save his life. And, it, and there's, but there's this whole sort of sense of like, you know, the ability to like put that aside and just like do their fucking jobs. For me, that was like, that was a, a, stunning totally unexpected character choice that I didn't predict sort of based on the way they set that love triangle up like I never would have thought where we're gonna land is that the two women like instead of them blaming each other you know over like this whole thing that they're gonna both just sort of quietly continue to be badasses and like deal with their emotions on their own yeah yeah like that was one of the things like I agree like one of the reasons why I sort of really started to sit up and take notice mm-hmm. you know with this show at this stage you know watching season one why I was sort of like oh wait a second like I have to start watching the show and sort of like thinking about it differently than I had for the first few episodes is because like they set up this like classic love triangle and then it became so much less about the love triangle and so much more about Raven and Clark trying to like work through their emotions about being in this situation work through their feelings about each other and about Finn you know, I think it's like one of the most defining moments for Clark or defining things about Clark that we get here is her, the profundity of her so self-sacrificial streak, you know, mm-hmm. that she looks at Raven and says like, she needs Finn, you know, like that right, she looks right. at Raven and has such deep compassion for Raven and empathy and such, you know, and such feeling for her to say like, I mean, maybe like even self-sacrifice is not even the right word because that suggests that like Clark is giving up something huge with Finn. She is giving up something, but I think it's more just for her to say like, there is a person who needs this other person. Right. And I need to make it, I'm I'm a, a barrier to that. I need to remove myself, which is just like add such a layer of like awareness and care to Clark that I think Mm -hmm. you don't expect from the situation you know you expect it's like cat fights instead of these two women sort of looking at each other and really recognizing each other and the value in each other and seeing you know like even though even though Raven is I think a little bit jealous she's a little bit territorial because she does feel like Finn is the only thing that she has you know like she still recognizes what's so like special about Clark she's not afraid of depending on Clark you know she she understands that they're sort of bonded and united by their care for for Finn 
And I think, like, that is unprecedented in TV. From that kind of setup, I was just like, oh, shit. Like, they're doing something totally different. You know, like, this is a story about these two women and about their emotional journey and not really about Finn at all. You know, like, Finn can be fucking unconscious the entire Mm -hmm. time. Like, and you know, it made me think about, so, like, this is, okay, so, like, nerdy professor, English professor moment of the podcast. (laughs) There's this theory, it comes out of medieval studies, so I I don't know a ton about it, but I just know a little, you know, like a little bit but basically like so it's a way of sort of like ta- thinking about chivalric romance you know so mm-hmm. chivalric romances are so often like there's a lady in a tower and right. there are these two men who sort of love her from a distance and the the classic version of that is Chaucer's The Knight's Tale which is about these two knights um, Arcite and Palamon and they both see this woman Emily at the exact same time and they both fall in love with her at first sight at the exact same time and it's sort of this like tragic story about and they're best friends of course uh-huh. it's sort of this, this tragic story about the two of them in this triangle with her but the 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 theory is the woman in this situation in, in this kind of triangle the woman in this kind of triangle is like not She's not fully like a person because the story isn't about her. It's not about the love right. for her. It's about the way that the two men loving her creates a relationship between them. So the theory is called homosociality mm-hmm. and it has mm-hmm. to do with sort of triangulation of relationship and desire between two men through a female figure. And the really fascinating thing about this love triangle is that it's kind of, it's, it's like a gender swapped version of that. It's a yeah, story it about really Clark yeah. and Raven. It's a story about Clark and Raven. It's a story about their identities, the way that they understand themselves, the way that they understand each other, the way that they understand the sort of like morals and ethics governing their relationship to each other, triangulated through Finn. But Finn doesn't really matter. You know, like Finn himself. Yeah. Um, in terms of like the way that the, that Clark and Raven's story works uh, with the love triangle story, like he can be, he can be unconscious. And the story mm-hmm. will carry on, you know? Yeah. And I love that. You know, you take this sort of like classic way, like structure of a story that sort of like makes the woman extraneous and they sort of mm-hmm. flip that and made the man extraneous. And it's just like, it was so unexpected and so yeah. like satisfying to see. Yeah. I love that. I had, I, yeah, I had not thought of it, but I, but I do, I think that it really, it does really play more like a love triangle in like a gender swap version of that kind of love triangle like you just mentioned much more than it does the conventional expectations you have of a love triangle that is two women cat fighting over a dude you know like our our framework for what that looks like is very I mean it's obviously it's sort of deeply imbued with all kinds of misogyny but it is <laughs> right. the way we expect to see this relationship manifested in media is usually entirely about the man you know like it like it's it is yeah exactly and it's often from the man he gets point of it's view. about who he chooses you know and exactly like, and the great thing yeah. about this is that it doesn't matter like Finn doesn't get to choose. He winds mm-hmm. up being rejected by both of them. Yes. Yeah. So it just like takes all of those tropes and turns them on their heads. Yeah. And it's just like so beautiful. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, it was, that was one of the things. Yes. Like I remember, I remember one of your selling points when you were, when you were telling me to watch the show was when we were talking about, about the women and how interesting and nuanced the women were and that you were like, you know, like there's a love triangle and they like do something with this love triangle that you've like never seen on television before, you know? And, I, mm-hmm. and they did. Mm-hmm. Like totally, you know, they yeah. totally do and 
And I, I really love, you know, I think e even though it does seem clear to me, and we've talked about this before, that I continue to think that the writers were headed towards Clark and Finn as endgame for the entirety of this season, you know, and I, and I think it I was agree. Yeah. not until really the space between seasons one and season two, where they made the decision to kill Finn off and bring in Lexa and, and take a different direction. I, so to me, it feels like I think that was sort of their trajectory. So even even knowing that this storyline probably was intended as a milestone on the road towards canon endgame flark, or at least for the end of this season. Right. I At I least still, reconciliation, if not endgame. Yeah. Like there was going yeah. to be a flark 2.0 in season exactly. two, I think, Yeah, planned. they were going to, it was going to yeah. come back in. Yeah. Yeah. So so even even knowing that that the Clark and Finn aspect of it is has that weight to it, that sort of weight of, of future expectations, what I think is really lovely and and kind of subtly done, I think, about this from both directions is the fact that like, you can feel at every moment how aware they both are of every single moment that the other is interacting with Finn and a whole mm -hmm. rainbow of emotions that go with that. You know, so like mm -hmm. every time Raven says something to Finn that kind of reminds everybody in the room that Raven is his long-term girlfriend, we get to see Clark's reactions to it and all of the complexity of those things that she's feeling where it's like she's feeling sadness for herself she's feeling so much I think anger and upset at this situation but she's also like cares about Raven and you know wants Raven to be happy and then I think Raven watching those moments of connection between Clark and Finn like there's I mean of course there's there's jealousy and frustration and that's like totally human and normal but there's also I think this sense of like the fact that they both care about Finn as the motivating force that they both use to keep each other going yeah is a really interesting and it's so subtly done. It's like it's like no one has to say we both really care about the same guy and that's like a big messy problem to sort out in a minute. But right now, use that to like stay on track so we don't lose focus. Exactly. Yeah. And so so both as a way that the show, you know, the thing that I love so much the show does where it gives such incredibly kind of like messy and complex emotional layers and nuance to teenage girls in a way that a lot of other shows mm -hmm. don't do you know especially as this transitions into which we'll talk about in a minute into the Lincoln storyline and in in Raven and Clark and, uh, and Octavia too and in the ways that they sort of engage differently with the torture stuff you know where Finn as the high stakes where they will do anything to save his life but I just but I really love I love how deeply they dive into both Raven and Clark's kind of awareness at all moments of everything that the other one is thinking yeah yeah like they're so attuned to each other and so in a lot of ways you're sort of like all right well just like let him die and you two should make out you know but <laughs> which is always and obviously the best solution <laughs> i know yeah well and then and then the other thing that the other thing that's so interesting about this too that i I don't think I had really noticed until rewatching it this time just now is how this is so deeply complicated by 
the Abby factor, you know, like Abby, like, like Abby on the radio with both of them talking them through this procedure with absolutely no idea what's been going on between her daughter and Finn, but knowing that Finn is to Raven as Clark was to Abby. And that was the Mm -hmm. thing that was motivating both of them to do the extraordinary, you know, feats of heroism that they did on the Ark to get Raven to the ground. Well, and also, and also there's, I think there's another layer to that that is really, really interesting between Clark and Abby, the sort of triangulation with Clark and Abby and Finn, which is that Clark is dealing with, you know, Finn betrayed her Mm -hmm. and her mother betrayed her. So, you know, she's, she's sort of like, I think there's a kind of like emotional confluence of issues for Clark that come to a head at the end of the episode towards the end of the episode when she sort of breaks down over Finn and then her mother brings up her father which is that here she has two people whom she cares very much about you know her mother and then Mm kind of like the first person she really bonded with on the ground who both betrayed her trust in a way that has made her feel like alone the emotional layers are just really fascinating you know because there's like there's Clark and Abby you know which is kind of in tension with Abby and Raven and like what Raven understands Abby and Clark's relationship to be through Abby versus Clark Mm -hmm. you know and then there's this whole sort of like Clark is trapped in this kind of basically in this in this really intense situation in which she has to deal with you know, she, she's depending on one person who whom she's angry at because she betrayed her. And she's trying to save the life of another person whom she's angry at because he betrayed her. You know, and trying to help this third person whom she accidentally betrayed. You know, mm-hmm. so like the kind of like emotional like calculus of this is just so oh, complex. Yeah. Again, you know, like we have to we have to do this at least once episode. Like shout out to whoever the casting director was in season one for finding, oh my God, yeah. you know, Eliza Taylor and Lindsay Morgan who are capable of pulling off these just like really complex layers of feeling mm-hmm. throughout like you know like this this is a sort of situation that would have been much flatter and less interesting with less skilled actors so oh yeah yeah this is this is one of those <laughs> moments where the potential for and there's there's so much of this you know i think more densely concentrated in season one but there's so many moments where you think okay if you took these story beats and you gave them to weaker writers or actors but it was the same plot outline you'd be like okay this is like at best a guilty pleasure trash television show you know like right, it would right really right. really feel like a cw teen drama you'd be like oh right yeah. right like a, there'd be some like a music montage you know and there'd be like a cat fight scene you know where like if you know and and so the fact that they don't take any of those easy shortcuts and there's also no the narrative does not pick a side that in and of itself mm-hmm. i think in any kind yeah. of a love triangle storyline like there's always especially i think if it's a man choosing between two women there's always a woman that the narrative wants you to want him to pick yes there's a woman who's like clearly the best for him or the best in general and then there's another mm-hmm. woman who is appealing but flawed you know or appealing exactly but wrong. yeah yeah there's like and there's our like, heroine that is the classic. and then there's exactly yeah there, there's like the heroine who's like the star of the story and then there's the woman that he thinks he might choose but you're really hoping he chooses the other one and it's like every rom-com plot ever you know 
Like, why won't he realize he's in love with his best friend? But I do, but so I feel like that in and of itself, I think, is such a a unique approach to it where you have such tremendous compassion for both Raven and for Clark. You know, Raven, Raven who has done nothing wrong, like who, who has not, mm-hmm. you know, crossed a single line. Until and this Clark, episode. Uh, yes, exactly. Until this episode. And Clark, who did so without knowing that that's what she was doing, but also is on honest enough to realize like the fact that I didn't mean to hurt you doesn't absolve me from having hurt you right right yes but we also really get to see you know that really interesting Clark compartmentalization where the thing you know the sort of emotional weight of the thing that's happening to her has to go on the shelf for a minute so she can do mm-hmm. the thing yeah and one of the things that that I that I love about season one that I they feel in some ways that this show forgets about or has forgotten about in some of the later seasons is that in this episode we do circle back to that and see her have that emotional breakdown moment like we do see her cry we do see her break we do see that vulnerability and I think in a lot of the later seasons you know it remains a consistent character trait that Clark feels things very deeply and often boxes up those feelings of grief when she loses somebody or of frustration or of anger or of hurt or whatever, like because she can't deal with them right in that moment. But often we don't get that moment of when she when things do slow down and she can breathe and feel those things and the weight of that hitting her you know like we sometimes i think we yeah we were we're on to the next plot point by then right we don't get to see her go back to a private space and just cry because what she did was hard and painful and difficult yeah yeah and she feels alone and she feels like she's going through something that she can't share with people like it's one of those really lovely you know, the burden of leadership for Clark, and especially in these moments before she really has the kind of relationship with either Bellamy or her mom that she has later on where she has somebody that she can, who can hug her while she's crying or or that she can talk mm-hmm. to about this stuff. You know, she doesn't really have, yeah. she certainly isn't there with, I mean, her mom is the person that she's mad at right now and she doesn't have that kind of intimacy yet with Bellamy, really. Yeah, so, that's next episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so this Oh, I guess really, like at the very, very end of this one when he comes up to her and he says, you know, who we are and who we need to be to survive yeah. very different yeah, things like, and it's hard being yeah, in like charge. they're getting like, there. So it's kind of like, yeah, there's like, this is the very tentative beginnings of that yeah. connection, but it's certainly not there in a way yeah, that but she not could there yet. in any way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, like there's there's no possible way. In this episode, you know, there's no possible way that she could be that vulnerable uh-huh. in front of him. You know, it's just not, not, not possible. Yeah, yeah, and so we really see that, like we see this incredibly isolated Clark. We see, and in this, really, it's just heartbreaking because... And I guess for me, like, like as a person who, who myself does a lot of emotional compartmentalization where it's like, well, I, I can't deal with you right now feelings. So we're going to come back to this later. You know, like I don't have this kind of time, you know, like I, in, I find season one Clark so relatable in ways that are sometimes very difficult to watch because in this episode you feel like she's so lonely, you know, she's so isolated and, and everything that she's doing is towards the goal of removing herself from the Finn situation so that he and Raven can get back together like she's yeah she's facilitating that happening 
even though she still clearly cares about him so deeply and the cost to her of being afraid that he's gonna die is just huge but also she's already decided I think yeah yeah and she's I mean she's like clearly from what she says when she says I can't do this without you know she still mm-hmm. feels like he's her only emotional support that she has yeah for what she's doing and I think you know so so like the kind of profound isolation that comes from her distancing herself from him without having anyone else to turn to you know before Bellamy kind of like becomes that person after the next episode yeah is really difficult and painful to watch and her willingness to do that you know to isolate herself for Raven Mm -hmm. is just like it's one of those things about Clark that's like so it makes you love her but it's also just like oh my god honey this is not the best way to do you know yeah yeah like like you're so noble but like in aggregate this is not a good plan (laughs) yeah yeah that's the kind of like the sort of martyr streak (laughs) that she has from time to time where it's like you know Clark always puts herself last she does things she can she can be thoughtless and when she's selfish she can be selfish on behalf of her people you know she can make a decision that benefits a group of people that she belongs to over a group of people that she doesn't belong to which is selfish on a larger scale it's heartbreaking because like you know I I rewatched all of season one up through actually 108 the next episode getting ready for this podcast and one thing that I really you know that I think that I forget but that is so like key to Clark is the way that she processes her sleeping with Finn you know like at the end of 104 she goes they go to the bunker thing the art supply store and they they sleep together and they have this kind of like brief little honeymoon period you know where like they're kind of like hanging out under the stars and chatting and as soon as she gets you know it's broken up by Raven's pod coming down and you know and, and the thing that I forget like little detail that I forget is that they get back to camp you know and they sort of discover everyone's buzzing and then they find out that Bellamy has left you know unbeknownst to everybody else and then Clark is immediately blaming herself she's like this is because I let my girl you know she's like this is because I wasn't here this is because I let myself have this like you know 10 hours for myself to have this pleasure to have this to do this thing you know so the way that Clark processes doing something for herself is like that right there it's like well it was sort of reinforced that that ended in disaster and then exactly I mean like arguably the same heartbreakingly arguably the same thing happens with Lexa you know she takes one moment to have something for herself before she leaves Polis and like you know like who's who knows whether whether Lexa would have died in that situation or not Mm -hmm. but you can see how for Clark this is kind of like again a confirmation you take a moment for yourself and it kind of like has these disastrous results and it's just like one of those things about Clark that's relatable but also just like so heartbreaking you know where like she oh, yeah. cannot allow herself to kind of like let go but it does mean that she winds up being so profoundly isolated and I do like I agree with you I think the sort of isolation is more poignant in this phase in season one because we get to kind of go through emotionally what that means to Clark in a way we're right. in like season four and in to some extent season three but like season four certainly I think part of the problem was that like that's what was meant to be happening with Clark but we didn't have access to that emotional side of it you know we right. didn't really have access really to you know to, to get to see her dealing with that as a person who's struggling with it as opposed to mm-hmm. you know this sort of like compartmentalized persona yeah so but yeah no but I mean it's like super super you know it makes the sacrifice that she's making that much more 
meaningful. You know, like this is one of those things where I'm like, this is one of the, this, I think this is the episode where I was, cause I never really liked Finn as everyone knows, <laughs> but this is the episode where I was like, Finn does not fucking deserve Clark. You know, like, he no, doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve either of he, these like, women. He, he does not deserve either of them. He's so wrapped up in what he wants. He's wrapped up in what he feels about Clark, but you know, he can't like, he can't make the hard decisions. And, and meanwhile, Clark is like, I will isolate myself completely from the only emotional support I have because Raven's emotional well-being is more important yeah. than yeah. my own, you know? And it's like, exactly. fuck, you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> I know this, this poor baby, like, she, I just like, yeah. I just want to like wrap her up and hug her, but it's also so, like, it's, it's what makes her such an interesting, complicated person is that she can, you know, she, she's not... I don't know. I don't even know, know what, what word I'm, I'm using. I just, I feel like, I think a lot in rewatching season one about the gap between the reality of Clark Griffin and my expectations of a CW teen heroine and how much yeah. more layered and messy the emotional landscape of her character is than so many other shows let female characters of any age but especially young women ever be you know like like she is because the moments where where you realize like how heartbroken she is over the fact that she can't be with this person that she cares about you know she's so vulnerable and she's so young but then you know she has to like flip right back to performing an incredibly high risk surgery in the middle of a storm with no anesthetic or anything on this person that she loves with her mom that she's in this huge amount of conflict with being the only person who can talk her through it. And you're just like, the amount of shit that she is going through, <laughs> you know, simultaneously. And, and Eliza's ability to convey every piece of that, you know, like what it does to her mm-hmm. when every time she hears her mom's voice where there's this sort of like, there's the comfort of like trusting, you know, like Abby knows what she's doing, like Abby can help and she needs her mom right now, both as her mom and as a doctor while also having this incredibly complicated emotional relationship to that need because she's still so angry you know and mm-hmm. and you know and how and how much she needs Raven and is really glad that Raven is there because Raven does things nobody else can do while also this part of her being like but if Raven wasn't here then I could have Finn while also us getting to watch how but then that she feels shitty about that you know she doesn't want to be that person yeah and, yeah and it's all it's all sort of like going on you know behind the surface and then it just is ramped up when we go upstairs to the Lincoln storyline and then everything goes sideways in this whole other direction. So yeah, I mean, it's just, there's so much happening in this episode plot wise. And, and again, and the thing that makes it work, the thing that makes the stakes feel high is because we get those still moments, those reaction moments, time to linger on what's going on in Clark's face and in Raven's face that makes us feel the stakes of the big action set piece you know blood storm surgery torture you know all these things it's like it it would it would just be theatrics if it wasn't tied to you know everything is pointed towards this person that these two women love might die and we're seeing everything through their escalating sense of urgency yeah yeah exactly yeah 
And I think, so that, I think that's a good sort of transition to the torture, yes. the Lincoln Bellamy torture storyline, which I think is really, really, it was another one of those things that kind of hooked me because I think yeah, that was, you, I know you had thoughts very, on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a very difficult, challenging thing to depict, especially as they depict it where like they really, really, they work very hard, I think, and do a good job in this episode of kind of denying you any comfortable place to settle. You know, they, they mm-hmm. don't, they, they deny the viewer a clear right answer. The closest they come is Octavia. Yeah. And I think not even, I think even her, you know, there's some, there's some issues, which I just like, you know, that was one of those things where I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So this TV show is doing something different. Cause like most, you know, most TV shows, network TV shows of whatever kind, they're going to give you a to- torture scene. They're going to give you a bad guy and a good guy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to give you like the evil person and the good person. And they, they don't do that here. And I remember the first time I watched this, being sort of intrigued by the fact that intrigued and sort of disturbed in a in a way that like really kind of made me think in the way that I kind of liked by the fact that I came out of the episode feeling like I was kind of on the side of torture mm-hmm. and that is mm-hmm. not something I would expect of myself you know mm-hmm. I, if you had told mm-hmm. me the premise of the episode going in I would have been like of course I'm anti-torture all the time mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. sort of emotionally watching the watching the episode I wound up on the side of you know at least very much empathizing with the characters who, who made the choices to torture Lincoln mm-hmm. and it was one of those things where it's like okay you know like that's interesting that's that's yeah 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 you know like I think I think one of the most one of the most interesting and complex things that this episode does with the torture storyline is like it's really sort of instead of telling you a story instead of giving you a morality play about torture right right. here's the good guys here's the bad guys it's kind of telling you the story of like how do people who otherwise might never engage in that kind of behavior land in a situation where the majority of them are in favor of torture like Mm -hmm. octavia is the only person in that room who's objecting and you know to kind of i think i think this is why this is one of those episodes where i think you know jason and the writers in the show they talk a lot about perspective being important you know like that one Mm -hmm. of the things they aim for is that regardless of who whose mindset you put yourself in you can sort of understand the perspective of each person understand why they think what they're doing is best. I think the show, you know, they that is clearly what they're going for. There are times when they do that very successfully and they times that there are times when they do that much less successfully. I think this is one of the most successful of those moments because of the way that it's less a question of like who's right and who's wrong and more a question of thinking about the very terms on which those decisions are made. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I find really interesting is that the people who arguably the people whose perspectives are the most the people on the side of torture whose perspectives are the most emotionally accessible and perhaps persuasive are the people who arguably have the least good rationale and that is Clark and Raven mm-hmm. and the person who kind of like you know and I think like in some sense Bellamy although he comes across as being the sort of like cold bad guy in some ways has the potentially the best rationale you know, so so like the interesting thing to me is the way that, you know, to go back to what we were talking about on the arc, you know, we have a sort of like clash between like emotional motivation and sort of like strategic motivation. And there's a lot of messiness. I think there's a lot more messiness in this version than there is on the arc. Because like Bellamy goes out and gets Lincoln. It's clearly partly emotional. You know, like he's, yeah. he's driven by anger and I think grief at having, at, at, you know, over the people who've been killed by the grounders mm-hmm. and also anger 
horror over what has been done to Octavia. But he's also not wrong in that he points out, like, look, there are people out there who are hunting us and killing us. Right. And we need to understand who they are and why they're doing what they're doing and what their capabilities are. And we don't have any mm-hmm. information. Right. So he has a he has a kind of like he's approaching this from a strategic standpoint. Like right. this is a person that we can get information from that will potentially help protect us from further loss of life as we've experienced. Now, that is like perpetually, that's always the, the you know, reason, rationale that's given for torture. We're going to get exactly. information yeah. that's going to help us. We know in real world, torture does not produce yeah. useful information. That has, that right? has so not like, been proven to be true. But, exactly. but it's a plausible so, so, argument so Bell- that comes up a lot. We hear that a lot. Right, right, right. So like, I'm not saying that Bellamy is correct in that right. r- rationale. I'm just saying that he is sort of like, he's a, he's a character who's taking a position that is the position of a kind of like strategic, strategic military position that is very common. Right. And he's sort of, and he he is sort of thinking big picture. You know, the interesting thing, if you think about like sort of Clark and Bellamy head and heart, at the beginning of this episode, in this episode, you really see like Bellamy is very much thinking with his head. You know, he's thinking strategically. Clark yeah. is thinking with her heart. So on the on the flip side, so Bellamy has Lincoln. Mm-hmm. He kidnaps him, he strings him up. The interesting thing to me is that Bellamy does not, Bellamy is constantly threatening. You know, like we got this guy, we're going to get information about it out of him. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do anything but ask him questions and look through his stuff. You know, like right. All he does is sort of like menace him and like flip through his book and look at his vials. He doesn't do anything. He does not actually proceed to torture. Yeah, it's really more like a conventional interrogation. Exactly, yes. It's much more like an interrogation with the kind of like he's willing to threaten physical torture in order to Mm -hmm. try to coerce Lincoln to talk, but he's not yet ready. And I think like, you know, speaking of acting, I think one another, this is another one of those things where like with a lesser actor than Bob Morley, this would not have worked. You know, the fact that that Bob is so capable of like conveying simultaneously Bellamy's bravado and also Bellamy's deep, deep dis-ease and sense of guilt and shame over what he's doing simultaneously. Like that's really, really key to mm-hmm. understanding sort of building Bellamy's character that he sort of, he thinks he has to be the person, you know, who's threatening Lincoln to get information and yet he despises himself for being that person, but he's sort of willing right. to take that on. So the interesting thing to me, so like he's sort of like, like you said, he's kind of like inter like interrogation he's willing to threaten physical harm he's not willing to cross that line it's not until Clark realizes that Finn has been poisoned and and Clark is also Clark is also like Bellamy comes in with Lincoln she says this is this is not who we are and he says this is it is now you know like Clark is very like clearly anti-torture at the beginning she sort of opposes him when he brings in Lincoln when she goes upstairs the first time and Bellamy's kind of like trying to talk her through his point of view she's still opposed it's not until Finn is she realizes Finn has been poisoned that Finn's life is about to be lost then she goes upstairs and then Clark gives Bellamy the go-ahead to torture Bellamy doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. until Clark kind of says like okay we should do this and Clark says we should do this not because it's good for you know the overall group but because of her emotional connection to this one person Finn which is really interesting to me you know if you think about sort of like strategy versus emotion go back to the arc and think about like the positive sides of connection human connection and emotion versus the negative sides I think this is another Mm -hmm. place where those things are being really really sort of muddled and made really complicated in that Clark's deep connection to Finn is sort of like what allows her to save his life it's what allows her to kind of reconnect with her mother it's what allows her to connect with Raven it's also what makes it possible for her to to cross the line to condone torture well and it's interesting because it feels like a there's interesting shades in this episode of Clark who is making the kind of cross any line to save the one person that you love 
you know, kind of decision making that we tend over the course of four four seasons of the show to really more associate with Bellamy and Abby. Yes, yes. And less so with her. You you feel the extremeness of it. I think the fact that it already feels like this is a like she's taking a big step in this choice that she's making is why like it's it's because we feel those heightened urgent stakes. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's one of those things that's really interesting to me. This is this is, you know, before Clark and Bellamy's sort of relationship and bond has been established and yet we still see like by season four we get around to the point where it's like Clark and Bellamy are better together because they balance out each other's sort of like stronger proclivities towards head versus heart but here is like even before that that balance is established we have this moment where like Bellamy decided to do this based on his head Bellamy sort of created a context a situation where Lincoln could be tortured because he was trying to think with his head and mm-hmm. Clark makes it happen. You know, Clark kind of make, is the catalyst to, to, for them to go through with this because she's thinking with her heart. You know, so it's kind of fascinating to me that when they switch roles, it's bad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Sort of dynamic is here. But yeah, you know, I think it's really, but, I, but I, I sort of, I find it really fascinating the way that they kind of like, again, like the show doesn't let you settle. You know, like Bellamy has, based on everything that Bellamy knows about the people that he's lost, you know, and he was out there, like, he saw Roma's body, he saw the way, like, the really sort of, like, sadistic ways that they were murdered by the grounders out there. He actually has no real reason to think that Lincoln wasn't a part of it. Exactly. Despite um, Octavia's insistence. And that notebook is, like, actively creepy. You know, it was, like, a drawing yes. of the sister, you know, it was, like, yeah, marking yeah, yeah. off oh, yeah. died, you know. Like, again, if you think about it from Bellamy's perspective, like, all of this evidence is evidence towards Lincoln really being kind of an active threat. But, like, again, like, that wouldn't necessarily proceed to torture without that additional sort of layer of Clark and Raven's extreme concern for Finn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Raven's the one who comes up, like, Raven, interestingly to me, is the one who's most gung-ho about it. Like, she arrives at the end and is just like, fuck it. Like, we're going to electrocute this fucker because, like, I yeah, can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the next episode, she's, like, the only one who has no remorse. You know, like, Bellamy's, mm. you know, like, a mess about it. Clark is a mess about it. Raven's like, whatever. <laughs> So they're all sort of wrong, but from different directions, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's really interesting the way that like you sort of are presented with a bunch of different people arriving, sort of like converging around like, okay, we're going to torture a dude from different points of view, all of them wrong for different reasons. And even Octavia, I think is really interesting because like Octavia is right in terms of she is absolutely opposed to torture, you know, she, and she is, and like significantly, she's the one who succeeds, you know, right, torture right. does not get them the information that they want. It's, it's Octavia's willingness to sacrifice herself that succeeds. So, like, you know, the show is, like, there's a sort of, like, nice, subtle, and I like that subtle way, like, they don't, they don't hammer, hammer you over the head with it. You know, they're like, we understand why they thought that, that torturing Lincoln was going to get them what they want, but it didn't. It failed. Here's what succeeded. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's sort of like, and I don't know if this is, this is intentional. I don't know. But, like, on what basis? Like, you know, so Lincoln, Lincoln still kidnapped her. He still chained her up in his cave. You know, like there's plenty mm-hmm. of reasons why Lincoln is still a very sinister figure. Link in, and, and Octavia is just sort of like, no, 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 he didn't kill me. He didn't kill me, which is like the absolute like minimum. Right, um, right. <laughs> and I know, you know, I don't think that the, I like I kind of am, I suspect that that's not totally like sort of taking that to mean that Octavia, there's like limitations to Octavia's point of view might not be what was intended because it's clearly meant to set up Lincoln Octavia and part of this is just because like I have such enormous problems with 
the first phases of Lincoln's character and their relationship that I'm just sort of like, yeah, that didn't work yeah, out so yeah, great. Yeah. Like, yeah. like he is actively fucking creepy <laughs> in a way yeah. that I'm not entirely sure was intended. But anyway, the way that it comes across, like arguably everyone in that room is sort of right and wrong from different points of view. And it's not really, you know, it becomes becomes much more complicated thing to sort of just like settle on an answer. Yeah, which is which is interesting because I do. I mean, I I feel the same way that you, you know, you, that you felt like with the the first time I watched this without any knowledge of who Lincoln was going to become. You know, like in this episode where he's he he could very well sort of be like a glorified extra. You know, like like random grounder man. You know, with some connection to Octavia before we really know anything about who he is. You know, when he's just sort of in some ways in this episode serving a similar function to Finn in being yeah in in important less intrinsically in and of himself and more as the thing the storyline surrounding him is sort of orbiting around you know like like Lincoln exists in this episode as the plot point that drives everyone to have to kind of figure out where they stand on this torture question in the same way that Finn acts as a plot point that sort of forces Clark and Raven into this partnership that neither of them would necessarily have sought out under different circumstances and yeah. which also then later serves as the thing you know like after they realize that he's been poisoned and that all of that hard work with the surgery was for nothing because the you know there was poison on the blade he serves as the thing that dials up the stakes for that storyline happening upstairs but they do very little they have no agency they're physically stationary both of them literally you know like they're both strapped in place they're like well they're like bodies to which things happen exactly yeah they're bodies to which things happen and and things that are done by raven and clark yeah they're like figures through whom characters have to confront themselves you know exactly clark has to confront herself Clark has to confront herself through Finn and through Lincoln in different ways. Like Bellamy torturing, you know, finally crossing that line and torturing Lincoln, I think, is absolutely picking up immediately after in Day Trip with Bellamy sitting there looking at him. That is, you know, like Lincoln is the figure through whom Bellamy finally ultimately has to confront who he's become through the choices that he's making, you know? So like it's sort of, they become the occasion for a kind of like, culmination uh the the logical outcome of the choices that various people have been making that force them that force all those sort of issues to kind of come to a climax which is like narratively fucking brilliant by the way oh yeah like well kudos to the writers exactly and and because so much character work is done in this episode in the sort of storylines that are sort of orbiting around these two kind of stationary male bodies that things happen to and i think one interesting place to kind of unpack that is i wondered watching watching it this episode again so the escalation of the torture right you know like going from bellamy whipping him with the strap to raven electrocuting him you know with the full knowledge that this is a 
a technology-free society, and this is something that, in addition to being the most painful of the torture techniques, is also something that is terrifying to Lincoln because he does not know what this is and it has never experienced it before. You know, right? So, so yeah. Raven is the one who really takes it to the darkest place of all three of them, and I and I just and I wondered watching it if some of that was an eruption of kind of some suppressed feelings of powerlessness of what had happened before you know like that she couldn't Mm. be the one that saved finn like she didn't have the skills needed to save finn like finn would be dead if it wasn't for clark and abby she could not have done that herself and she you know so she did she fixed the radio so like so she did so it's not like i mean it's not like she didn't save the day because she's raven she totally fucking saved the day but um (laughs) but in but in but the radio is different from Finn's body, you know? Like, there's a different yeah. um, weight to it. And and so Clark, so Raven's sort of sitting there, like, kind of holding him still and trying to keep him calm and handing Clark things. Well, Clark is the person who had to do the big, huge, terrifying, save the life, pull the knife out, stitch him up kind of thing that, that Raven couldn't do. I wondered, you know, watching her, you know, when she sort of, blows up and she's like he's all i have and she's you know like shocking the fuck out of lincoln if some of that was the thing that that we see as a recurring character trait from raven like when raven is frustrated at her own powerlessness she has outsized emotional reactions to that you know she is so used to being able to fix every problem that when she hits a problem that she can't fix like we see her do later with her leg you know like when there's a when there's a thing that she can't outsmart her way out of it she has this tendency that they've developed really consistently over four seasons where she sometimes just blows the fuck up, you know, and it's and sort of Lord help anyone who's in her way, you know. And and so I just found myself wondering if, you know, she can't let herself be mad at Clark right now. You know, she can't she has no space to deal with being angry at Clark because of the Finn thing in a conscious way because the immediate problems with them are so dire. But is there mm-hmm. like contained in her in the in the way that she's kind of like takes charge and she's just like, fuck it, I'll like electrocute it. Like I will murder this guy. Like I have no fucks <laughs> left to give. You know, because she couldn't because she was so helpless for the whole rest of whatever happened before. She was just standing there hoping to God that Clark and Abby didn't fuck this up. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so it's just interesting how much of what we see happening in this scene among all these different characters is really planting seeds for stuff that, you know, four seasons down the line, we're really seeing sort of bearing the fruits of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think like the same, the same sort of like, outsized reaction to loss of control thing could be applied to Bellamy too in a different way where like his reaction to losing people that he was trying to protect is to sort of like, massively overcorrect in the other direction you know exactly so like he loses a few people to the grounders and his reaction is like fuck okay i'm gonna kidnap a grounder and torture them you know yeah um there's sort of like (laughs) there's like a little bit of sort of like there's the bellamy that's going to be sort of susceptible to pike in -hmm. season three the bellamy who's sort of who's sort of willing to kind of be like okay who's the person who's who's the group who's a threat and like what can i immediately do right now to take control and try to sort of offset that threat you know, and again, it's sort of interesting that he has this sort of pattern of hesitance 
before he actually carries through with these things. He sort of has the dark thought and then he hesitates. And it sort of takes someone else, Clark in this case, to say like, yeah, do it. Mm -hmm. You know, Pike later on saying like, yeah, do it to kind of like push him over that line. I find it really interesting to approach this episode from the point of view, not of sort of like of these characters who is morally the most right and who is morally the most wrong or whatever, but sort of think about like, you know, emotional, psychological exercise in like, okay, what are the circumstances under which people wind up in this position? You know, like what what are the circumstances under which I wind up basically sort of like sympathizing with torture? It teaches yeah. you something about yourself. You know, it's easy to be like, obviously, I would be on the side of angels, but like, I don't know right. that. You know, like, no, it's my well, privilege and- in life that I've never had to be right. forced to make that choice. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I felt the same way. Like what you were saying, the first time you watched this, feeling like you were sort of that you were on the side of it. Like I felt the same way too. You know, like at this point, point in the storyline, we knew nothing. Of, I mean, it's. I think it's one of those things where it's like it's easy to rewatch this knowing who everybody becomes and read things very differently. Like we know that Lincoln is a person who more than many of the other grounders is motivated by wanting to be nonviolent, not always, not always capable of it, not always able to avoid violence, but, but by a desire to move away from a nonviolent way of life and being rejected by his own people for being insufficiently violent so we know Mm -hmm. having watched all of these things knowing what happened later that he is not what they think that he is but we didn't know that then you know like watching this the first Mm -hmm. time we had no more information than bellamy had and so i remember too the first time i watched it thinking they again like yeah not not being you know pro the harming of another human being but thinking like bellamy is right to be strategic in trying to figure out how to get information about how much danger they're really in because we have no way of knowing how outnumbered are they is this guy playing some kind of a long con like what is this connection that he has with Octavia I felt watching the first time like Bellamy was doing something that was very ethically obviously troubling but very reasonable Mm -hmm. and I remember sort of feeling like Very much understanding why he got there. And, you know, and like you, and, and feeling more more on Bellamy's side and more in line with Bellamy's justification and and less so for Clark and Raven, who seemed so clearly like, I'm just pissed. And, like, there's an element of, like, I'm angry and I'm taking it out on you. In addition yeah. to the fact that they feel like this could get them helpful information. Whereas Bellamy, I think there's a... There's a neutrality to Bellamy's choices that's interesting. Like, Bellamy hasn't yeah. personalized it, like you said. And, and you know, and I'm always, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, my kryptonite is Kane and Bellamy parallels, you know. But, um, <laughs> but it is, but it's interesting to me, you know, I think where even this early on in the show, even before the two of them as characters have met or interacted, that we do get all of these little, some of them very small, but, like, sort of little parallels of, like, Within the confines of the ethical framework that I have built for myself, you know, I'm going to do the best thing I feel like I can do. And I'm going to try to not step outside of that. So, like, you know, so Bellamy does things that are totally motivated by what he sees as a good, which is protecting his sister and now, you know, protecting the people. Um, But there isn't any malice or cruelty 
in his choice to torture Lincoln, you know, whereas there is for Raven. Yeah, and indeed Bellamy seems palpably disturbed by the act of torture. Yeah, and I think that's why it's hard for him to, part of why it's, it's I think, extra hard for him to face knowing how this looks to Octavia, knowing that it's making Octavia... Mm-hmm feels so like so angry with him and and I think having some like he knows that this looks to her like he's doing something evil and he can't make her understand why he feels like he's doing or again he's doing the thing that's going to keep the maximum number of people alive which is like we are trying to get a sense of you know what we're up against in in a big picture kind of way you know and and so Raven then charging up there and you know cutting the power line and like electric shocking Lincoln's chest and basically being like tell me what I want to know you motherfucker you know like she takes (laughs) it to a totally different kind of place where Mm -hmm. where you could you could see I think Bellamy trying very carefully to figure out what's the smart play here and what's the thing to like where like again like within like I've decided that I have to I'm taking a hostage to get information so within the confines of that like what's the like what's the least amount of like I guess what what's the what's the best way that I can do this, you know? And um and yeah. Raven and and Clark to some degree too because they're personally bound up in it. They are, you know, Raven is not thinking at all about useful strategic information that can be gleaned from Lincoln for the good of all of mankind. She's only capable of thinking about one thing. And it's also I think an interesting little snippet of kind of a preview of the way the three of them will come to make decisions later, which we also see again in season four, you know, the Clark and Raven and Bellamy leadership trio and how different they can be, you know, that way too. I think, you know, and actually as we were talking, it occurred to me, I think I figured out why Lincoln sort of niggles at me in this episode in a way. And that's also because like, Lincoln is totally passive. You know, he doesn't speak, he doesn't react. But Lincoln is still making calculations on whose life is worth preserving and whose isn't. You know, he's still making Mm -hmm. those kinds of judgments. Just like, I mean, like, you know, like Clark and and Raven value Finn's life over Lincoln's, if not life, at least sort of like bodily autonomy or something like that. And Lincoln, in the fact that Lincoln caves when Octavia cuts herself but was more than willing to let Finn die you know he's making a calculation of whose life is worth saving and like I think the thing that that's kind of like sticks in my craw about that that I don't think is intentional I think this is just a kind of like unfortunate outgrowth of the underwriting of Lincoln at this stage in Octavia is that there's really he has he has really zero basis for making that judgment other than Octavia's pretty and he's apparently been hanging around drawing pictures of her he doesn't know anything about Finn you know like all he knows about Octavia is like apparently he's been drawing pictures of her and she's wandering around in the woods and he like kidnapped her and chained her up instead of you know using his words which we found out we had so (laughs) so I'm a little like there's a little bit of a problem in writing there in terms of like you know, like the plot sort of requires Lincoln to remain silent in, insofar as Lincoln is not really a character in this episode, but again, more an occasion for the other characters to work through this stuff. Okay, that works. Right. But like Lincoln as a character kind of doesn't really make any sense because it's like, why does Lincoln decide that 
Finn is worth letting die and Octave is worth letting live. I mean, I guess, you know, she's right. been standing there advocating for him against torture. Okay, fine. But, like, he put all this into her before and there's, like, zero reason. There's, like, zero apparent basis for it whatsoever. It's like, so the whole thing is just a little bit sort of like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know. It just It just kind of falls apart a little bit. If you're trying to think through, like, Lincoln's motivations, it falls apart a little bit. Right. Well, and I I do, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit. I can't remember if it was in the recaps. or It might have been the recap we did last summer when it was whatever episode where we first meet Lincoln and we talked a little bit about, like, his characterization of the were like, as a whole yeah 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 um, yeah well like they have the, like, like juggalo clan and like right right yeah, 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 even? like yeah. why is any why is any grounder doing anything that they're doing at right, this point right it's like total makes zero sense it makes even yeah. less sense in context of what we learned about grounders in season exactly two and three. moving forward yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah i i but i i found myself watching this episode trying to figure out if i could narratively navigate a path towards understanding or or figuring out a strategic reason from Lincoln's point of view why why he would never reveal even to Octavia that he can understand her until the moment that he finally does yeah and I I feel like I'm not quite there yet I can see well here's the problem here's the problem as far as I can tell it makes sense if he is a part of a group or an army or something whose secrets he needs to protect in order to right, 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 yeah, yeah. Of the unit. He's behaving well, we like a spy. Out that it's would just behave. him by himself. Exactly. Right. When it's just him by himself, there's like zero reason for him to do that, other yeah, than just but, like being a stubborn asshole. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I guess I will say, I can completely understand why he doesn't say anything in response to Bellamy or. Or the people that are torturing him. Like, that That feels like that's Yeah, tracks. yeah, yeah. Sure. Like, sure. not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not wanting to yeah. give them the satisfaction, letting them continue to wonder, is all of this even ultimately pointless? And, and out of spite, not choosing to help them when he could help them because they kidnapped and strung him up and beat him. You know, so, like, I right. totally, like, from Lincoln's point of view not rewarding their behavior and their treatment of him by being like, all right, fine. Here's the information that you wanted to let me go, please. You know, um, right, right, right. like that all tracks the, but it's, it's the Octavia question, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. it's everything in some ways that happened before when he's with her, when she's in his cave, when they're in the woods, all these opportunities that he had, like if he, if he trusts her enough, and cares for her enough in some way by this point already that he is willing to essentially concede that he was lying the whole time, which makes them all extremely angry, by indicating that he can understand them and and saving Finn's life by giving up, okay, this one's this is the correct poison antidote. If he's willing to do that to save Octavia's life, that retroactively makes his behavior in the cave makes so much less sense where he could like, he could have yeah. just told her, Hey, so I'm not with those other grounders. I'm hiding you out here. I mean, like, I guess maybe there's an extent to which he was trying to figure out. He was trying to read her then too. And wasn't sure yet whether she was dangerous. 
You know, like, is he... But still, why he, wouldn't he just, but, like, it still doesn't explain why he wouldn't communicate with her at all. Like, I mean, yeah, he I know. tell it's, her, yeah. hey, here's why you shouldn't leave the cave. Right. Without, like, giving away any other, I, yeah, I just... It, <laughs> Yeah, it all it all gets messy and falls apart when you loop Octavia into it, whereas the rest of it I feel yeah. like all basically tracks. You know, like I think the yeah. I think the rest of it feels like I I understand and it feels consistent with who he is that he would not want to give Bellamy the satisfaction of Bellamy extracting useful information where, you know, Lincoln would basically turn against his own people, distant from them, though he is, under torture. Like, I get all of that. It's really just, like, I don't understand why he did not say anything to Octavia. And I will never understand that. I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's, like, Lincoln as plot device works Mm -hmm. okay, Lincoln as eventual yeah. character later works okay, but the transition from Lincoln as plot device to Lincoln as character is like as series regular love interest is <laughs> yeah no but seriously it's like this and then the next episode Octavia frees him and then I think the next time we see him after that they're like doing it in his cave you know it's just this mm-hmm. like how wh- how why yeah. later on like later on I totally buy why but like. Yeah, the sort of transition is just sort of like, all right, Mm. that's awkward. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Agreed. So, yeah. yeah. And it it does sort of like inject this sort of weirdness surrounding Lincoln that I think muddies Mm. things in a way that they didn't intend. Like there's a lot of ways that they really did intend to sort of muddy the, the torture question. And I think... Lincoln's sort of like shadiness is not actually one of them that they intended. It's like he's sort of like yeah, semi like not all so, of his shadiness was totally intentional. Yeah, and it's also so complicated. Like you can't you can't divorce it from the really uncomfortable racial trope or from like the noble savage trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a lot of things going on that it takes them. I think a really long time much deeper into this season and really I think much more clearly and much better in starting in season two to figure out like who is Lincoln why do we care about Lincoln who is Lincoln in relation to the grounders what drives him as a person besides these kind of noble noble savage tropes that are just really really kind of squeaky and problematic and and what aside from a black male body to be beaten up and tortured in a way that plot orbits around which is itself like real problematic (laughs) aside from that like who is he as a human man you know and they're and they're not there yet yeah no no no. and so it makes it hard to kind of detangle the threads of how much this was were they still figuring out who are these people called grounders um what are they like how do they behave? How do they interact with Sky Crew? Well, and even like Lincoln himself, I get the feeling at this stage, they also don't know. You know, like I, I don't. Yeah. Know. Like so much of like the Lincoln that we know later, I think is something that they came to later and, and doesn't totally yeah. jive with this initial Lincoln because because he was just sort of like 
plop, okay, silent grounder figure who's sort of like here to do these particular things. Yeah, and and everything that we've seen so far would track equally well if their end game goal for him was to be a villain character who had a particular soft spot for Octavia that became a problem. You know, like true. if if he if he was going to be a a bad guy or even not a bad guy but sort of a um you know our antagonist entry point into the grounders who who is sort of perpetually at odds with sky crew and with our protagonist characters he hasn't done a lot yet to lift himself above those kind of tropes or if he has it's all it's all yeah it's all a little sort of muddy still so mm-hmm. so i think it's yeah. complicated by the fact that like he's one of the characters that on rewatch you know like i forget sometimes when i think about how much i came to love him in season two and how devastating his death in season three was how badly i wish we'd gotten so much more of him in season three the fallout that we see of his death on you know on octavia like like knowing the magnitude of how important he becomes and how horrifying you know his ultimate death is it is easy i think to forget until you go back and rewatch where you're like "Ooh, this was not an auspicious beginning between me and this character you know like yeah like i i very (laughs) much came i think more so than than almost anyone else except potentially maybe kane and bellamy lincoln is one where like my affection for him came very very late because it took me a really long time to feel like I could get past the squick factor of him and Octavia, their relationship beginning basically in like kidnapping and then reverse kidnapping, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I had the same problem where I was like, I mean, I remember the first time I watched it, the whole mid season Lincoln Octavia thing. I was just like, yeah. I know you want me to ship this show, but like, I ain't having it. Yeah, and she's fif- and she's like fifteen or sixteen or something. Yeah, exactly. I was just like, nope. <laughs> like the, the the age gap factor of it, and and the violence factor of it, and the fact that we still didn't really have a clear sense until much much later of like who he was. Like he like Lincoln really became. I felt really deeply emotionally interesting to me in season two. You know, like yeah, that was, no, I agree. and I agree. that was where I really, you know, and then by season three, I just adored him and every scene he was in, I was so happy he was there and, and just wishing that we had more of him and that he had not died. But, <laughs> but, it, but in, yeah, in season one, like I, I was not shipping it. I was not having it the first time around. And what I did like about, and again, and it's more him as a plot device than about you know, him as a person. But what I began to find interesting about their storyline together, the Lincoln and Octavia relationship, as we sort of see it begin in this episode, is it's a place where we see Octavia at odds with Bellamy, where it isn't rooted in just big brotheriness. You know, like it, it is, yeah. it's not Octavia rebelling against her overprotective big brother. It's Octavia pushing back against Bellamy's choices as a leader. And that's interesting to me. The Lincoln storyline is the first thing that we really see Octavia beginning to, her, you know, her taking care of Lincoln, her being the person speaking up against torture. You know, it's the the Octavia that we really like who is, who has that toughness and that, and that grit, but is often like the moral 
voice against everybody else and really seeing her begin to sort of separate from Bellamy in ways that aren't, that are not sort of framed as like teenage rebellion. Like it's not like with Adam, you know, like with Adam, it was like, she's just trying to piss off her brother. You know, like it's yeah, purely exactly. like yeah, yeah. rebellious little sister. And and a lot of the other stuff that happens is tinged with, you know, she feels frustrated by Bellamy's attempts to control her. And so even when she's doing something that's the right thing, a lot of it has this. And also, by the way, a oh, fuck you very much big brother element to it. And this really feels <laughs> like in, you know, in some ways the the torture thing in terms of what it gives us of Octavia, kind of clarifying sort of where her moral lines are, I think it it's it's just interesting to me because it's very much about the leadership decisions. It's as much towards Clark. You know, she's very, like... Yeah. She's very unhappy with Clark in that last little thing where she's like, you didn't save him. Like, don't you give yourself credit for this torture thing having worked. You know, like, right, don't you, right, like, right. I mean, like, I saved his life. I'm the one that did it. By being nonviolent, not by torturing him, you know, by assuming that Lincoln would be a good person instead of fundamentally assuming mm-hmm. that he would be a monster that you had to torture information out of, you know. So so it sets up that kind of dynamic of, you know, Octavia at odds with them, but it's interesting that it that it is it is so little about their siblingness. Yeah, exactly. It's like it, like you said, it's more about her becoming aware of what her sort of values and morals are surrounding sort of more big picture stuff, which is really interesting again, you know, looking at who Octavia becomes in season four and then who she's going to become in season five, you know, like Mm -hmm. seeing if her sort of like shifting towards being in that leadership role and having to make decisions from that sort of more broad big picture perspective rather than this one sort of like hey this guy was nice to me don't torture him perspective has changed her she is a character i think who is who has come so far you know who's like so different from what she was at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. although she still has that kind of like intensity and conviction in her own beliefs yes you know it's kind of like characteristically octavia Whatever those beliefs are, she believes in them 100%. Yes. <laughs> a thousand percent. She'll kill you for them. <laughs> or not. Whatever it happens to be at the moment. <laughs> Which is a very teenager thing, you know. It's, a little, it's very... It's true. It really you know, is, yeah. If you, if, you put a te- if you put a 17-year-old in charge, <laughs> that might be a thing that you would expect happening. And there isn't any, there's, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no Jasper or Monty in this episode, right? No, they, they're mentioned in sort of a drive-by that they're out during the storm. They haven't come back yet. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that's, yeah. So we're spared that pain until next week. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want Every, to. I, rewatching any Jasper scene now is inherently painful. It's I know. Just, I, it's rough. I was having a hard enough time just watching you live tweet watching it. And I wasn't even watching it. I, know. I was just like, yeah, like I was like, oh God, Aaron's watching Jasper Monty scenes. I'm already upset. But, um, but no, I think, well, I think actually I, I, I do wonder if perhaps structurally part of what makes this episode really sing, like what makes this one a really, really good hour of television is that they actually, especially with the, with the ground storyline, 
they really contain how many different characters are in it. You know, like we get a little drive-by, we get yeah. a little Miller, we get a very brief little flash of Monroe, but the entire ground storyline is one, it's like one connected story in two pieces. There's the Finn part of it and then there's the Lincoln part of it, but they are, so there's things that are happening simultaneously that then come to a head and sort of merge into one with yeah, the Yeah, they sort stuff. of converge into one thing, yeah. That's true. Is this the first is this the first Miller episode, by the way? Um, I it certainly is the first where I think he has any meaningful interaction with anybody. I think he was sort of in the background before. Is he the one does Bellamy use him to like when they're wanting to kill Jasper and he I feel like he's he's used in like a guard capacity by Bellamy somewhere else earlier, but I can't remember when. But this yeah, is his first. Right, but this is the first time that he's sort of like positioned as Bellamy's kind of like right hand man, sort of. Yeah. Um, situation. Yeah, and, and that we see, and that's, and it's, which is, and he's interesting too, because this is the kind of thing where I wish somebody would go through and do a super cut of like every sort of emotionally significant Miller scene in season one, you know, where we can kind of look at. Who does he become in future seasons? Because he does have that kind of, you know, there's that pragmatist aspect to Miller of like how how he chooses which leaders to follow is interesting because he's yeah. very much, yeah. you know, he he hitches his wagon to Bellamy in season one and is like totally ride or die for him. And then in season two, you know, as Jasper's leading the kid rebellion, Miller is like right there, no questions asked. And then in season three, interestingly and we don't ever really sort of get inside of why he ends up on team kane over team bellamy and and but then in season four it sort of surprised me that he would be on the jaha you know lock bellamy up squad you know so like there's this he it we don't always have i think a clear line of how miller makes choices except that he seems very pragmatic of like who is in charge here? Great. Okay, I am your loyal yeah. right hand. And he's not doing the thing that some of the other characters do where he's sort of deeply and carefully weighing how he himself personally feels about all their choices. He's just sort of like, you know, I have attached myself to the leader whose decision making I trust and I'm going to execute whatever he tells me without questioning those orders necessarily, you know? It's more just like, this is the person I trust, so I'm going to trust them. Exactly. And who that yeah. is kind of shifts, Yeah. More Miller supercuts. That's what we need. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's really true. Yeah. Um, ah, is anything right. else that we need to cover? I feel like we've done a pretty thorough job I of think it. we have, which is a little bit freaky because we were like still under three hours somehow. I know. Is, yeah. This is It makes me feel amazing. sort of like yeah. vaguely. Yeah. I'm just like, wait, we, did we miss something? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's easier when, when it's such like a tightly written episode yeah i i mean i think so i think i think this is a this is a really really clean episode of television there's no fat yeah. there's no extraneous bullshit it doesn't take any kind of side tangents there's a you know there's an arc storyline where all the pieces are connected leading towards this kind of you know what diana sydney does next power grab plot and and both halves of the arc storyline are really sort of pointed towards that and then there's this, you know, ground storyline where you have the Finn thing leading into the Lincoln thing that all really also sort of sets up what happens next, you know. So everything feels like it's moving forward, 
and and packing in a ton of plot but really efficiently you know like not a lot of so I think yeah. you know like I, I I miss the lack of Jasper and Monty but I also feel like you know they do a good job of keeping everyone out of the room except the characters who are moving this story forward so huge chunks of it are just you know Finn alone with Clark and Raven so we are moving back to our every two weeks hiatus schedule. So we'll be back two weeks from today with Aaron's favorite episode, Day Trip. <laughs> I wouldn't say, I don't know that it's necessarily my favorite episode. I'm not, I'm not ready to commit to that, but I do. Okay. It does have a very special place in my heart. Favorite of season one, you think? You know, I don't even. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I'm, I, I will interesting. Commit, I, I'm not interesting. Ready, I'm not ready to say. Okay. I mean, in some ways, yes. I would say, as a shipper, yes. Favorite episode of season one. As from from my non shipper perspective, I don't think it is. I don't think it is overall my favorite season or favorite episode. Although it is, like I said, it does have a very very special place in my heart. And the more I watch it, the more I love it, and think that it's actually like super duper smart and doing cool stuff that I'm very excited to talk about. So I don't know, maybe it is my favorite episode. Tune in next time and find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Erin processes her feelings out loud. <laughs> uh, that is basically what this podcast is, is like, you know, hours true. and hours of processing our feelings out loud. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I, I really do feel like I, I often, especially with the episodes that we're watching for the first time and then discussing, like not so much with these because I've seen yeah. them all a million times, yeah. but like when we're, when we're recapping a season as it's happening, there are lots of times where I don't really know how I feel about something until we've discussed it for two hours and I'm like, oh, Me too. okay, I hated it. <laughs> it's like, but now I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Or, oh, I thought I hated it, but I actually love it. But yeah. now, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. It's an uh, emotional journey. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, two weeks from now, we'll be back with a recap of 108 Day Trip. And then we also have a bunch of other stuff coming up. We have, uh, we're going to have a, a special sort of podcast thing about upcoming fan stuff, including conventions, um, including hopefully some very exciting news for us and for also these conventions. Yep. And other things potentially also happening, maybe, too. <laughs> the big question is, has Aaron been slowly sobering up over the course of the past three hours or getting loopier? And I don't I, know that I can tell from here. I have. I am definitely soberer than when we started. I uh -huh. did have a glass of wine while we were talking, but I have... I have I, <laughs> I feel more sober now than when we started, but that is, but I'm still also very loopy, but I started loopy. Like before I started drinking, I was loopy. So I think I'm just like returned back around now to my baseline level of loopiness. Got it. I think, but I'm going to kill the bottle of wine after we stop recording. So that's my girl. Join me on Twitter for more drunken Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Husband's out of town. I gotta entertain myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so she's drinking with the dog. 
I am drinking with the dog and the dog's diarrhea, which is the other thing that's been happening today oh. while I'm drinking is because my life is just nothing yeah. but me alone in a house with dog diarrhea. So, you, know, <laughs> you gotta do something. So you super, super have earned that wine. I'm not questioning I that. have <laughs> fucking earned my wine. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll let you go finish right. your bottle and okay. we will see everybody else back here in two weeks. Bye! Bye!